Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro-access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Harriet motherfucking Tubman, one of the most important conductors on the Underground Railroad, a brave, inspirational human being. We were all lucky to hear her tale today and and have a little bit of her light illuminate our sometimes too dark world. Uh, She escaped slavery, ran to freedom in 1849, and then spent years helping hundreds of others do the same. She also helped the Union Army during the war, working as a spy, among other roles. After the Civil War ended, Tubman dedicated her life to helping other impoverished former slaves and the elderly. In the past few years, her name has been the subject of controversy uh, regarding the possibility of her image replacing Andrew Jackson's on the $20 bill. We're going to dig into all of that and so much more on today's Man, Am I Lucky to Be Alive and Free Today inspirational edition of Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Time Suckers. Hail Nimrod, Lucifina, Triple M, Bojangles, and fuck Chikatilo and Chicken Joe. Um, Dan Cummins, the Master Sucker, Nimrod's Prophet, Sir Sucks-a-Lot, uh, Suck Dungeon, Suck Executioner, and you are listening to Time Suck, recording again uh, in the Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, Suck Dungeon with Reverend Dr. Joe motherfucking Paisley, where winter has arrived, and we're so glad so many of you have sent in nice gifts to put up on the walls around us. Keep our spirits warm in the dark, cold months of a North Idaho winter. Got really one really weird gift for the YouTube uh, uh, people watching this. Got some Third Eye sunglasses. So weird. Uh, sent in from thirdeyesunglasses.com. You got to you gotta keep the rays off your third eye. Can't let the, the fluorescent lights, you know, mess up my third eye. Got to have protection. Um, but yeah, thanks for the continued reviews, everybody. Always appreciate it. Getting close to 6,000 ratings and reviews on the U.S. iTunes podcast chart alone. Each nice review rating that you leave, I mean, anywhere, really helps more people find the suck. Keeps it relevant. Keeps people checking it out, just like Yelp reviews. Keep people finding the good restaurants. So thanks for keeping us uh, in the in the top 100 of the fastest growing comedy podcasts in the world all year long in 2018, Time Suckers. Happy to announce... 
that the Happy Murder stand-up tour for next year, uh, the dates are are out there now. They're booked. Uh, not all of the ticket links are totally uh, up and running on the club's end. A lot of different venues to kind of coordinate with. But uh, 2019 almost completely booked. Why am I calling it the Happy Murder Tour? Well, because I fantasized about a lot of violence over the years in my stand-up. If you listen to me, you know about that uh, all too well. And, and I have some new stand-up along those same lines. Uh, you know, just narcissistic strangers keep really uh, irritating me. And uh, to keep me from killing people in real life, I find it nice to kind of fantasize and just vent and get out of my system. And then other people will come to the shame and have that same cathartic release of like, yeah, fuck those people. Those people being rude out in public, speaking on their speakerphones, you know, picking their asses, you know, and then shaking other people's hands, just doing lots of just annoying, uh, unnecessary stuff. And, and a lot of other types of, you know, uh, uh, concepts being discussed in the new stand-up tour as well. So, very, uh, very excited that it's going to be coming to uh, Bridgeport, Connecticut in 2019, New Brunswick, New Jersey, Philly, Salt Lake City, uh, Birmingham, Atlanta, Georgia, Nashville, Miami, Cleveland, Kansas City, San Francisco, Boston, Jacksonville, Grand Rapids, Michigan, Raleigh, North Carolina, you know, uh, Omaha, Cincinnati, Los Angeles, San Diego, San Francisco, uh, Phoenix, Indianapolis, Tampa, Orlando, Minneapolis, Tacoma, Portland, and, and more. A lot of other dates. Uh, you'll just have to check out it's at Dan Cummins Comedy on either Instagram or Facebook or DanCummins.tv. Just go to the website. Excited to uh, to be bringing some new stand-up uh, to a lot of different places. It's, and it's not going to be a completely different set of material that, uh, than the 2018 stuff, but I'm adding a lot of new material, shelving some of the material I did because I haven't recorded anything from uh, 2018. Just going to pile it up. Going to stockpile it up. You know, just keep building bits and uh, we'll see where they end up. Also, thanks to everybody who checked out uh, the TimestuckPodcast.com store. It looks so good. Access to the redesign, and uh, you, you can get to it from the, from the you know, it's a Shopify store. You can get to it from the app or the TimestuckPodcast.com website. Such a cool line of products now. Uh, you can hold and wear the suck. Really happy with how the prayer candles, enamel pins, windbreakers, beer glasses, and so much more turned out. And this is it for a while. Uh, not going to be uh, throwing out a big line of new products like that. We just wanted to build up the store in 2018, so we can introduce you know fun things here and there in 2019. Thanks for letting us do that. Now let's uh, now let's get into it. Let's get into it, Meat Sacks. The time to suck. Harriet Motherfucking Tubman is here. Work and wait. It's time for time suck. Not going to lay out a bunch of context, historical context prior to the tale today. Going to jump right into the timeline, you know, just just learn uh, relevant information as we go, shake things up a bit from some previous sucks as far as structure. Uh, we're going to get angry on behalf of Harry motherfucking Tubman and the indignity she suffered, be inspired by her toughness and generosity of her spirits as she fought to overcome so much and help so many others do the same. So let's get into today's Time Suck Timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time-suck timeline. Kicking off today's tale in 1787, when Harriet's mother, Harriet Green, is born on a Maryland plantation. Uh, Harriet's family, believed to have come uh, to to the United States, uh, or come to be in the United States, with the arrival of her maternal grandmother, a woman named Modesty. Modesty the only grandparent of Harriet Tubman that any records are known to survive for. And Modesty was brought over from either Ghana or the Ivory Coast as a member of the Ashanti tribe. 
sold to a man named Athel Patterson in the mid to late 18th century who had a 265-acre plantation in Dorchester County, Maryland, situated on the east side of the Little Blackwater River. Uh, near its confluence with the large Blackwater River, just a few miles from Chesapeake Bay in the Atlantic Ocean. Athow. Atho. Weird name. A-T-T-H-O-W. So, it sounds like somebody with a lisp tried to say, uh, call him an asshole. You know, maybe with a little bit of accent. He's beautiful, Charles. Uh, what, what should we name our beautiful boy? Little asshole. Another mouth to feed. Uh, she'll drown him in the river. Oh, Charles. Atho it is. Atho is a wonderful name, Charles. Stupid asshole, filthy urchin, be the death of me, this woman. Uh, from the wharf in front of his home, Athow Patterson, uh, probably shipped tobacco, timber, grain, destined for England and other markets, received goods originating from the uh, West Indies or England, as well as other trading points in New England along the Chesapeake. Athow was a Revolutionary War veteran, modest farmer and slaveholder who could trace his roots in Dorchester County back to at least the end of the 17th century. Intermarrying for generations, the Pattisons and other old blood Eastern Shore families consolidated their control over vast tracts of dense timberland, uh, rich marshlands, productive farms. Modesty was impregnated, a.k.a. possibly or even probably raped, let's, let's be honest, by an unknown white man in either 1786 or 1787. No text, historical text, used the word rape, but, you know, consent— it uh, gets a little tricky when someone owns you and, and can legally beat or kill you if you don't follow their wishes, does it not? Uh, Modesty gave birth to a daughter, Tubman's mother, Harriet Green, nicknamed Ritt, in 1787. And in 1787, uh, Tubman's father is also born, Benjamin Ross, born on the nearby property of a man named Anthony Johnson, uh, Benjamin being another slave. When uh, Athel Patterson uh, died in January 1797. He gave Harriet Ritt Green to his granddaughter, Mary Pattison. Uh, you know, be- bequeathed her uh, to Mary Pattison in his will, stating in his will that he gave Mary, quote, Rydia and her increase until she and they arrived to 45 years of age. Now, this terminology limited Ritz and her children's terms of service to 45 years. Uh, it was, this was intended to provide for Ritz's eventual manumission, as it was called, or, or, or freedom from slavery. Uh, Maryland manumissions had taken place even in the earliest days of slavery, never an informal procedure. Manumissions were taken quite seriously, were often recorded in land records like deeds for each county. Uh, Some slaves were able to earn enough money to buy their own freedom, and on occasion, slaves sued for their freedom, some eventually prevailing. Uh, Shitty uh, for the, I'm guessing, overwhelming majority of slaves who lost their cases. Uh, How much does that suck? You know, you take your honor to court, sue for your freedom— and then you lose and you get your fucking ass kicked uh, the second you leave the court. And then uh, and then again, back at the owner's home. And then I'm guessing again and again and again. Uh, not fun. A lot of, lot of athos uh, in this story. In 1752, Maryland passed a law restricting manumission by will to slaves, quote, sound in body and mind, capable of labor and not over 50 years of age. And this was, uh, they did this to prevent slaveholders or estates from just avoiding responsibility for the care and maintenance of disabled or elderly slaves. In 1809, 29-year-old Mary Pattison, uh, Harriet Ritt Green's owner, uh, married a man named, who had married a man named Joseph Brodus uh, in, in 1800, would pass away. So Mary passes away in 1809. Mary's first husband had already passed away in 1803. Quick marriage. And then Ritt uh, became the property of Mary's son, Edward Brodus. And Eddie, 
won't end up feeling like honoring grandpa's will when it's time to let Rit go free at 45 years old. He's not going to do that. He's not going to give her that uh, manumission. It's classic Eddie. Uh, classic Eddie dickhead Brodus move. And when Eddie doesn't feel like letting Rick go, there really isn't, frankly, a lot she can do about it because she wasn't considered a citizen and had very limited rights. So a lot of this stuff is, you know, it's fucked up in so many different ways. But there could be these laws where it's like, yes, you know, uh, somebody, you know, technically can purchase their freedom at this age. But then when you're the um, only person paying them, you can make sure they never get enough money in order to do that. You know, uh, they don't have rights unless some other wealthy person is going to stand up for them. Uh, some some wealthy, you know, like plantation owner, which is highly unlikely. Just they were just constantly just shit out of luck. Back in 1803, Mary Pattison, a.k.a. Mary Brodus, had married Anthony Johnson. All these people have a lot of different names in these sucks because people just died so much more often back then. You know, people get married young at like 15. You know, uh, their their husband would die of like typhoid or, you know, whatever the flu in three years, and then they get remarried almost immediately because they were kind of dependent on somebody else to, to to live. And then that person would die four years later, and then they'd get married again. Um, not a lot of divorce back then, a lot of remarrying due to just young death. So yeah, so back in 1803, Mary Patterson, a.k.a. Mary Brodus, uh, married Anthony Johnson shortly after her first husband died. And Anthony Johnson, if you recall from a few moments ago, was the man who owned Tubman's father, and now their, you know, quote unquote property is combined, which allows Tubman's parents, Benjamin and Ritt, to meet. So that's probably the, the, the kind of long story of how her parents met and the two would soon wed. And no more is really known about Tubman's ancestors, uh, partially due to a devastating fire set by an unknown arsonist uh, destroying the Dorchester County Courthouse in May 1852. You know, and it just destroyed a, a, a great deal of Dorchester County's historical records with that fire. So 1825, Harriet Tubman is born. In 1825, on Anthony Johnson's property, destined to become the property of Anthony's stepson, Eddie Dickhead Brodus. Or she might have been born in 1815, or she might have been born in 1820. Because she was born into slavery, the exact date and even year of her birth is unknown. Her death certificate says she was born in 1815. Her gravestone says 1820. Harriet herself believed she was born in 1825. Uh, Originally, she was born as Araminta Rost, uh, known as Minty called Minty by her parents. She was the fifth of nine children from Harriet Ritgrain and Ben Ross. Uh, Minty had four sisters, Lina, Mariah, Riddy, Soph, uh, excuse me, five sisters, and Rachel, um, and four brothers, Robert, Ben, Henry, and uh, and Moses. So yeah, there's a whole whole group of them. So I guess, it, wait, it says four sisters, but then, oh, I'm sorry, I messed up. Four sisters, I was I messed up looking at my own notes. Uh, I read Mariah and Riddy as two separate names. No, Minty had four sisters, Lena, Mariah, Riddy, Soph, and Rachel. There we go. Now that makes sense. Four brothers, Robert, Ben, Henry, Moses. Okay, Harriet and her family did a variety of jobs uh, as the farm on which they were born. Didn't require quite enough work to keep uh, to keep them all busy. Anthony and then, uh, you know, later Eddie would, would hire her and her parents and siblings out to other white families in the surrounding area. And apparently Harriet was a bit of a troublemaker for whom she was working for. Anthony constantly had to threaten her with being sold and separated from her family in order to get her to do what she was told. Now, she is described in the historical text as troublemaker. Uh, Strange kind of phrasing to me. It's like, was she really a a troublemaker? Or was she just someone who really hated being bossed around by people who owned and and beat her and her relatives? I don't know if that's a a troublemaker as much as, uh, you know, just somebody who, like most of us, really wanted her freedom and didn't like the situation she was in. 
in this instance. Uh, so when Harriet's mother was away from the cabin working in the quote-unquote big house, Harriet was often tasked with caring for her younger siblings, starting when she was five years old. When she wasn't much older than that, we don't have exact dates and ages for some of her childhood activities, Harriet was hired out to a man named James Cook, supposedly initially to learn weaving, but then she was uh, uh, initially instead sent out in harsh winter uh, weather to set muskrat traps in a nearby marsh. In all likelihood, she's probably around seven or eight years old when she did this. Uh, my God. Whenever I read about what kids used to do or were forced to do in this case, I'm reminded to give my own kids more responsibility. Kyler turns 13 years old in a few weeks, and, and I wouldn't trust him to catch a muskrat if his life quite literally depended on it. Uh, like if I was trapped in some kind of snowed in cabin uh, with Kyler, just the two of us, and I'd broken both my legs, and we had to depend on him kind of catching some kind of food uh, in order for both of us to survive, I, I think that both of us would quickly accept that we were just going to die. You know? Like, cut, cut, son, I need to go catch some muskrats. We're, we're goners. Uh, all right, dad. Okay. All right, love you. Dude, Kyler, why are you just taking off your boots and sitting down, man? That's not how you catch muskrats. Dad, you and I both know I couldn't catch a ham sandwich. Someone set it on a plate right outside the door. I love you. Uh, I'm going to go lay down and I'm going to play Fortnite until I'm too weak to stay awake and we both die. Uh, seven or eight was too young even for Harriet to catch muskrats. Of course it was. And the winter work conditions broke her down and she eventually contracted measles, becoming too weak to work further. Her mother, Rit, convinced Anthony to have her return home so she could recover. And then once her health improved, she was sent right on back to Mr. Cook's property. This time she really was supposed to learn how to weave, but, uh, now she was a little irritated about the whole muskrat situation. She refused, became uncooperative. I get it. Once again, returned home, and I imagine based on what we're about to hear, uh, probably beaten severely. She was next hired out to a woman known locally as Miss Susan. Uh, her, her task was to care for Miss Susan's uh, you know, newborn baby, young baby, and help out with household chores. And Miss Susan was, I think it's okay to say, uh, when it came to slavery at the very least, a real bitch, a uh, real athow. Uh, oh, you athow. Uh, and I know uh, in situations like this, you'd be like, yeah, well, what about Andrew Jackson? He was a slaveholder too. Why didn't you call him a bitch? Well, I think I did call him an asshole. Uh, maybe a piece of shit. Uh, the, whatever the traditional male equivalent to bitch is. And, and if I would have read the following account about him, I'm sure I would have come up with a lot more names. Uh, young Harriet's job, excuse me, was to make sure that Miss Susan's baby didn't cry overnight. She tried her best to comfort the baby by constantly holding and rocking the baby. She uh, did everything she could think of to keep the baby quiet. Because uh, when the baby wasn't quiet, and the infant cried out, Miss Susan would come in and whip the shit out of Harriet, would whip her on the back of the neck, whipped her so hard it would leave scars she'd have for the rest of her long life. Whipped for not keeping a baby quiet. Uh, I feel like that's a good way to end up with a severely shaken or smothered baby. Uh, Shaking a baby is obviously terrible, terrible thing to do, but when you're forced to stay up with the baby all night, and then when you're whipped, when that baby cries... Gotta be really tempting just to shake the shit out of that baby. Especially when that baby is the child of the person whipping you. Especially when you yourself are, are a kid. Just shut the fuck up, baby. Shut the fuck up. The baby cries and it gets the pillow. Just shh, shh. The baby cries and it gets a good, solid pillow nap. It's okay. Not gonna kill you. Just long enough to make you go to sleep. Just long enough to keep you quiet. Just long enough so, so when you're older, you have a you have a little harder time learning reading and arithmetic than your classmates. Um, Harriet would also be whipped uh, due to what Miss Susan deemed to be improper cleaning techniques. That's how it was written uh, regarding the baby. Uh, no idea exactly what that's about. Just maybe it's not going to be quiet, baby. 
Uh, I'm going to wipe your ass in a real interesting way. I'm going to wipe your ass right up into your stupid fucking mouth. You like that, baby? You like tasting shit? Huh? Maybe that'll keep you quiet. Maybe you need a little shit sandwich to keep you from getting me in constant trouble. Uh, and then one day, Harriet stole a lump of sugar from Miss Susan and was so scared she ran to a neighboring farm and she hid in their uh, pig pen for three days. She was that frightened of being beaten. And then when she was caught, uh, she was, of course, beaten severely. And then she was sent back to her master, Anthony Johnson. This is all when she's a kid. Man, can you imagine if that was your kid getting treated like that? So desperate for sweets, so desperate for a little bit of kindness, so deprived of anything other than the most basic foods needed just to keep living. Uh, they're risking a savage beating just to have literally a little lump of sugar. That's like that's like a shitty equivalent of a of a fucking Halloween fun sized or kid sized candy bar today. Risking a, a, a severe beating, hiding for three days because you stole a, a half a bar of a Kit Kat. Man, and this was the norm back then. And Harriet would continue uh, to do odd jobs for various white families in the area until the early 1830s-ish, until around the age of 12, when she uh, she began working in fields doing hard manual labor. Unreal. Not to keep throwing my uh, 12-year-old son Kite under the bus. He's a great kid, and I love him. Does well in school. He's nice to his classmates. He's funny. But I cannot imagine him working in a field of any kind. I can't imagine him doing literally any anything in a field for one day, for not one whole day. Even if he didn't have to work, I can't imagine him spending just a day in a field, like if he didn't have an iPhone or a PS4 or, you know, some fucking granola bars with chocolate chips in them or some kind of cheese sticks or something, maybe some chocolate milk or some root beer, and then have to work really hard on top of just, you know, being in the field and then working under the constant stress of worrying about being whipped by some asshole. Think about the reality uh, of the life of American slaves for a second. Like put it in today's context. Imagine for a second, put in, in your mind's eye, Put on your put on your third eye sunglasses if you have them to keep it from getting too intense. No, but but imagine in your mind's eye like if your boss, this is your reality, is legally allowed to whip the shit out of you whenever they want for whatever reason they want, and you're not allowed to quit. Like if you quit, they can beat you to death. They might be able to beat you to death anyway, but for sure if you quit and you're not going to have any value for them, like there's a real chance of that. You know, that's, that is unreal to me if, if you put that into 2018 context, you know, just pow, just what I tell you about deposits, Linda, I said you offer the customer the option of printing out their current balance. Wah-pah! You forget again, I will lock you in the fucking bank vault with no food or water, no potty breaks, and we can see if you can remember that shit tomorrow. And then just a couple more whip cracks for the hell of it. Does that sound insane? Because it, it, it is, it is fucking insane. But reality, for so many human beings all throughout history, for so many African-Americans, you know, pre-Civil War, for, for people like Harriet Tubman, ah, it's, it's, hard, it's hard to process that reality for me. Uh, physical field work uh, was actually preferred by Harriet rather than the tip, typical kind of domestic work handed out to women. At least, uh, I guess you got to be outside, uh, maybe around other people. She enjoyed their company. Um, she, 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 she did enjoy it at least until a nasty head injury. Uh, that would leave her with uh, occasional seizures and pain the rest of her life uh, resulted, you know, partially from her kind of having outdoor work because uh, sometimes rather than just, you know, like working and, and harvesting, you know, agriculture, whatever, she'd have to do other kind of like run errands. And sometime in the mid to late 1830s, she was, she was working for a family and then was sent out with one of the cooks to a local store to pick up some supplies for the kitchen. When they got there, they encountered another slave that was attempting to flee from his owner. 
The slave master called out to Harriet to stop him as he was running by her, but she intentionally ignored this demand, let the slave slip by. And then in an incredible act of bravery that would speak to how she would live the rest of her life, I mean, she's only around 12, 13, 14 years old this time. She stood in the doorway and attempted to stop this master from catching the runaway slave. And then the guy grabbed a two-pound scale weight, sitting on a nearby counter, threw it at either the runaway slave or her. Something, I mean, most things say she, he threw it at the runaway slave, but I don't know. He, if, 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 this, if that's true, then he's a real, real bad shot if he's right next to her. Because what happens is, you know, he hits her just directly in the head with his two-pound weight. And uh, almost kills her, uh, you know, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm guessing, uh, you know, she probably got screamed at for, for causing a problem and for getting in the way of him catching this, this guy after she got her head smashed in. I doubt any apologies were handed out. The following day, the man who threw the weight was thankfully mauled to death uh, by a dog thought to be uh, none other than Bojangles. Only three paw prints led away from his body, and some people in the area reported seeing a very muscular, extremely handsome, charismatic, one-eyed, three-legged pit bull hanging out nearby. Uh, one witness reported to seeing the dog smoke a cigar like a like a badass human. Uh, some cigars had been stolen from another especially cruel slave owner in the area who was found torn limb from limb, also possibly by a dog, although money was also stolen, which would make that less likely if that dog was not Bojangles, Defender of Freedom. And uh, defender, uh, fighter of slavery. Uh, if you're confused, new listener, uh, a.k.a. Suff Virgin, uh, Bojangles is our mascot and, and one of several reoccurring characters. He's a good boy. He loves freedom. He fights for it. Good boy, good boy Bojangles. Good boy. Uh, unfortunately, actually, I don't think anything bad happened to this guy uh, who smashed young Harry in the head with a two-pound weight. If it did, it uh, doesn't look like it was, anything was written about it. Later in life, Harry would say of this incident, the weight broke my skull and cut a piece of that shawl clean off and drove it into my head. They carried me to the house all bleeding and fainting. I had no bed, no place to lie down at all, and they laid me on the seat of the loom, and I stayed there all day in the next. And then despite the obvious severity of her injury, she was quickly forced a few days later back into the fields. Her wound had not fully healed yet. It would continue to bleed while she worked. She would later say that the blood and sweat would combine and pour down her face uh, to, to such an amount, uh, such a degree, that she had trouble seeing anything. Uh, her owner, Eddie Dickhead Brodus, just a child when he received her, tried numerous times to sell Harriet after this incident, but no one was willing to pay for a slave that uh, had been injured and was deemed to be weak. Many historians of research today think that uh, she would suffer from temporal lobe epilepsy for the rest of her life due to this injury specifically. Uh, spouts of unconsciousness, headaches, and seizures would plague her until the day she died. Harriet, a deeply devout Christian woman, would attribute these visions as she called them, uh, she probably had due to the head trauma to religious experiences. Uh, but in all likelihood, it was probably an epileptic episode or maybe some vivid dreams. Uh, and again, Harriet uh, would be a devout Christian for her entire life. Slaves were uh, often required to attend church with their owners and masters. Thomas Garrett, a noted abolitionist who would later work with Harriet on the Underground Railroad, uh, Railroad once said that he never met with any person of any color who had more confidence in the voice of God as spoken direct to her soul, her faith in a supreme power truly was great. In 1836, Harriet was hired out to uh, John T. Stewart, a plantation owner, businessman, shipbuilder. The move allowed her to be closer to her father, Benjamin, who was also working in the shipyards at this time. Starting in Stewart's home, doing the usual domestic duty, she quickly worked her way back out into the fields where she preferred to be, uh, and then onto the docks, and then eventually even into the timber yards. 
Uh, Harriet would prove her worth in in these typically male-dominated jobs, you know, jobs such as chopping and hauling wood. It was in these areas where she would learn about secret communication, uh, the secret communication that was in place between groups of black men and women in the surrounding areas. Knowing how to utilize these lines of communication would later play a big role in Harriet's use of the Underground Railroad. Uh, Around half of the black population of the area was free at that time, so word could spread farther if need be. If people were trying to escape, they had uh, you know more friends, if you will, in Maryland than they may have in other uh, states, especially farther down south, obviously. Uh, it, was, it was while Harriet was working for Mr. Stewart that she met the man who had become her first husband, John Tubman. John was a black man born free, uh, the son of free parents. Not much is known about how the couple actually met or what type of relationship they had, but everyone is pretty sure that they, quote, did it at least a few times. In all likelihood, uh, historians think that boobs were grabbed and penises and vaginas were touched in pleasurable ways. Uh, one current Harvard professor and published historian, Anzel Wilhelm, said, quote, while a lot of the original documents have been lost or destroyed, enough entries in John's diary have survived to give us relative certainty that vaginal penetration indeed did take place and was enjoyed immensely by both parties. Uh, no notes have survived relating to either oral or anal pleasure. And, of course, that's not true. Uh, <laughs> Pretty sure no Harvard historian has written a sentence like that about anyone uh, ever. Uh, sorry. Sorry, guys. I just I can't keep it classy. It's not what I do. Hail Safina. John and Harriet would marry in 1844. Kind of. The marriage was only spiritual because Harriet was still a slave. She had no legal rights and therefore could not be legally married. Also, because she was a slave, if the two had any kids, uh, they would immediately become the property of Harriet's owner, Edward Dickhead Brodus, old Eddie Dickhead. Uh, which may have factored into them never having kids. In 1849, when Harriet was around 24, 25 years old in all likelihood, or maybe around 30 or maybe 35, again, dates are funny. Um, fun fun with dates when birth dates are uncertain. Uh, when Harriet was probably around 25, her owner, Eddie Brodus, uh, was falling into debt and was looking to sell some slaves in order to make up the difference, pay off his debts. Minty, as Harriet was known at that time, began fearing that she, as well as her brothers, might be sold to a much dreaded Southern plantation. Uh, where living conditions would be far worse and where no free black men or nor, no free black women lived in the area. Because of this fear, she began praying every night, later saying, I prayed all night long for my master to the 1st of March. And then when a prayer still hadn't been answered a short time later, as far as, uh, you know, uh, maybe getting a shit together and not having to tell anybody, she decided to change her, her prayer to, oh, Lord, if you ain't never going to change that man's heart, kill him, Lord, and take him out of the way. And then one week later, her prayers were answered, and Edward Brodus became ill and died at the age of 48. Hail Nimrod! Uh, Being a deeply religious woman, uh, Harriet would later say she was riddled with guilt. You know, she felt that her prayers had a lot to do with his his death. And and I'm guessing while she never admitted this, she had to have been on some level happy as shit. I mean, come on. Ding dong, the dick is dead, the dick is dead, the dick is dead. Uh... With her former owner out of the picture, her and her family's fate unfortunately became even more uncertain, though. Uh, slaves would often be auctioned, auctioned excuse me, off after their owner's deaths, and now the fear of being sold just became a, a real reality for Harriet and some of her family members, and they could be sold in a variety of ways and all split apart. Uh, three of Harriet's sisters had already been sold, and she was determined to prevent her other siblings from suffering the same fate. Uh, the time had finally come for Minty Tubman to plan their escape. In preparation for their escape, uh, you know, uh, she officially changed her name from Araminta Ross to Harriet Tubman. It's believed she chose the name Harriet in order to honor her mother. 
with some money she'd managed to save from her time at the shipyard, as well as the Underground Railroad contacts she had made there, Harriet convinced two of her brothers to join her in her run for freedom. Her husband, John Tubman, was in no immediate danger since he was already free, and he decided to stay for the time being. Seems a little bit nuts to me, but I don't know the details of their exact relationship. Uh, on September 17th, 1849, Harriet and her brothers, Harry and Ben, uh, that's kind of funny, Harry and Harriet, but Harry and Ben set off for the trip to Philadelphia. At the time of their escape, Harriet had actually been hired out to Anthony Thompson, her new owner, uh, Eddie's widow, Eliza Brodus, uh, wouldn't uh, even know they had escaped until two weeks after they left. So that was a nice little head start. Man, I bet when uh, when Eliza found out that uh, she was gone, there, there was there was some hell to pay for some of the people who remained. Right? Just when were they last seen? Two weeks ago? Two weeks. And no one thought to mention anything to me. It's almost as if the rest of you don't enjoy being here. It's almost as if the rest of you would also like to escape. Uh, when Eliza realized they'd run away, she rushed to get a notice out in a local paper called the Cambridge Democrat. And on October 3rd, 1849, an ad was sent out offering a $300 reward for the return of Harriet and two of her brothers, now fugitives. Fearing their eventual capture and subsequent punishment, Harry and Ben decide to head back, which is crazy to me. Uh, I'd be so worried about punishment uh, that I'd be met with if I returned voluntarily. Because I, I, I don't think you get a, you get a welcome back home uh, party thrown in your honor when you return after running away. You know, just there, there's no sympathy. There's no like, hey, please, please don't do that again. You had me worried sick. Now eat some stew. You must be famished. No, I'm guessing you were just punished, you know, uh, worse if caught, but I'm guessing you still were punished severely uh, even when you turned yourself in. Sad that they had to live in that much fear. Harriet traveled back with her brothers to make sure they returned safely and then afterward traveled back up north by herself. Brave-ass lady, man. She didn't have to head down with them, uh, but she traveled. Harriet motherfucking Tubman. She's not going back without a fight. Uh, I wish I could travel back in time. Just give her a big old hug. Uh, and this is just the beginning of her inspirational story. Using the North Star as a guide and sometimes uh, help from a, or I guess some timely help, excuse me, from a local white Quaker woman, possibly Hannah Leverton or Hester Kelly, brave locals who later admitted to being abolitionists in the area, Harriet successfully made the 90, nearly 90 mile trek back up uh, to, the, to, <laughs> to Pennsylvania on foot and alone in the dark the vast majority of the time. Can you imagine driving, you know, traveling 90 miles in the dark, on foot, through the woods, right? When, when if, if you get spotted by anybody, there's a good chance you're going to be, you know, taken back to a where somebody owns you and beaten. God, uh, the exact route she took is impossible to know. Thought she traveled by night under cover of darkness to north uh, northeast along the Choptank River up through Delaware uh, until she made it to Pennsylvania. Harriet would later reminisce about this moment saying, when I found I had crossed the line, meaning obviously Pennsylvania, uh, I looked at my hands to see if I was the same person. There was uh, such a glory over everything. The sun came through the trees and over the fields, and I felt like I was in heaven. Uh, once settled in Philadelphia, Harriet found work doing various domestic tasks and homes and hotels, all the while saving as much money as she could in hopes of returning to Maryland to rescue more of her family. She enjoyed her freedom, obviously, but she also became super homesick, saying later, I had crossed the line. I was free. But there was no one to welcome me to the land of freedom. I was a stranger in a strange land, and my home, after all, was down in Maryland because my father, mother, my brothers, and sisters, and friends were there. But I was free, and they should be free. And it was this unselfish desire to free her loved ones and others that motivated and led her into becoming, you know, arguably the uh, the, the greatest liberator out of the Underground Railroad conductors. 
um, you know, the great liberator uh, she is now famous for being. The next year, in 1850, uh, Harriet received word that her niece, Cassia, and Cassia's two kids, James and Araminta, uh, were to be sold at auction. So she rushed back to Maryland as soon as she could, despite being a fugitive slave who could be captured and returned to her former master at any time. And she stayed at the house of Cassia's husband, John Bowley, a free black carpenter, uh, ship carpenter. The day of the auction, Bowley submitted the winning bid for his wife and kids, and the three of them were immediately shuffled off stage where the family fled to a nearby house owned by another black, uh, free black family. The following night, they found passage on a boat to Baltimore and proceeded on to Philadelphia from there. A few months later, Harriet returned to Baltimore again, risking her own freedom again, and helped her younger brother Moses travel north to freedom. I have never done just any anything anywhere near that brave in my entire life, and now she's done it twice. Harriet took a liking uh, to her nephew, James Bowie, and, uh, and paid for his schooling at St. Catharines in, in Ontario because she was a fucking saint. Uh, he studied to become a school teacher there. After the Civil War, Bowley would actually go on to teach in South Carolina and later be elected to the legislature of Reconstruction in South Carolina. Uh, random funny story note, legend has it that when Harriet was taking her trips down into slave-owning states, she never made a trip without packing a pistol. Uh, she not only used it to potentially fend off people who were trying to capture them, but she also used it as a deterrent for any slaves who might change their mind along the way. Rather than risk the slave turning back and possibly sharing information about the workings of the Underground Railroad, uh, Harriet would brandish the weapon when people got nervous and remind people that dead men tell no tales. Harry motherfucking Tubman. Hey, Lucifina. Ah, uh, Lucifina loves you, Harry Tubman. Uh, 1850. Not a good year for American slaves. Uh, terrible, terrible year for free black men and free black women living in America. The Fugitive Slave Act had originally been passed in 1793 which made it legal to return runaway slaves to their owners if they were found and convicted in a jury trial. But with this original law, state law officials were, were not to be used in the apprehension of these individuals. And this law was basically, for decades, ignored altogether in the North, where many people were opposed to the notion of slavery anyway. However, with the passing of an updated version of the law in 1850, uh, corruption began to run rampant. Uh, even in free northern states, local law officials and federal marshals were now tasked with capturing anyone even suspected of being a runaway slave. And then in an effort to incentivize officers to not assist anyone thought to be a fugitive, the officer would face a $1,000 fine if they failed to report or arrest someone they suspected of being a slave. So basically they're being, you know, uh, coerced into uh, arresting all, uh, you know, black men and women. In the North. And you might think if you're a weekly listener, yeah, but after listening last week, I know that law enforcement was incredibly amateur and unorganized in America back in 1850, uh, the year that last week sucked subject that Pinkertons were founded in Chicago. And you're right. Uh, they weren't real good at tracking down specific people back in 1850. However, you don't have to be really good at tracking down a specific person if you don't need to grab a specific person. If you can just grab any person of color and be like, yeah, I think this person looks like who we're looking for. And, and no one's going to fight you. And, uh, you know, you're worried about being fined if you don't do that. Like, you don't need to be good at law enforcement. You just need to be good at, like, telling the difference between somebody who is uh, fair-skinned and someone who is dark-skinned. Uh, you just need to be an unscrupulous bounty hunter because they also got rewards. Offic officials who recovered a slave were given a bonus or bounty upon return. So, you know, quote-unquote law enforcement could just simply declare that, yeah, yeah, you, you seem like a runaway slave to me. And you could just, you know, grab them. Uh, take them down south. If it's not somebody's runaway slave, somebody else is going to buy this person. You get money from that. And, you know, uh, so you get money either way. So eventually this this new law or just, you know, or, or 
version, this new version of an existing law just creates a bunch of bounty hunters. Um, yes, yes, yes. Not good. Not good. Uh, and then combine all of this with this, another aspect of the new law stating that anyone caught harboring or, or, or feeding a fugitive slave is subject to a, a fine of a thousand dollars as well and up to six months in jail. And, and now you got, you know, all kinds of previously free Northerners getting enslaved. Because if you're like a white Northerner, uh, you could know that your black neighbor is a free man. But when you, some shady ass bounty hunter starts threatening you with six months in jail and a thousand dollar fine uh, for, for helping your neighbor, you know, when you maybe have $10 to your name and, are, and, and, and you know, uh, are you going to risk, you know, uh, possibly going to jail? Possibly getting a huge fine that's going to financially cripple your family and, 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 and har- you know, make it harder for you to p- put food on the table. Are you going to do that for your neighbor? Are you going to risk all that? I feel like Harriet Tubman would risk all that. Uh, but would you? Would I? I mean, I'd love to say yes, but saying it's easy when you don't have to suffer or worry about real consequences. Yeah, just this uh, this new version of the law put everybody in a real shitty spot. It made life very, very, very hard for uh, free African-American uh, you know, men and women living in the North and for any runaway slaves who have made it to the North. Okay, in 1851, uh, despite all this, Harriet makes another trip to Maryland to reconnect with her husband, John. Did you forget about him in this story? I did. I forgot she was married. Uh, She hasn't seen him since she ran away, you know, two years prior. Uh, She'd hoped to bring him up to Pennsylvania to to finally join her in freedom, uh, but was then devastated to find out that in the two years since she'd left, he'd married another woman. She'd returned to Pennsylvania heartbroken, or she would return, excuse me, to Pennsylvania heartbroken. Uh, but now at least I guess she could devote all of her time and she would devote all of her time and energy to freeing fellow slaves. Uh, John and his, new, and his new bride, if you're curious, would go on to have uh, four kids together. And uh, as far as I know, uh, a happy life. Uh, man, uh, relationships, bit different in the days before text messages, weren't they? I mean, even people not living in hiding who weren't runaway slave fugitives had a hard time staying in touch back then. For the average person, it could just take a, you know, it could take a few months for a letter to get from some some city on, let's say, the East Coast to, uh, let's say, if you know, you met somebody in like, you know, England or someplace like that. Or if you met somebody somehow that moved to the West Coast, you know, it, take, it could take a few months for their letter to get back to you. Like you can meet some girl or dude you liked. And then if they lived across the country or, you know, across the pond, uh, you know, you send them a letter saying you, you, you love them. You, you want to like, you know, pursue a romantic relationship with them. And then they could send a letter back to you saying, oh, that sounds great. But they did just barely meet somebody, you know, and uh, and, and they're, you know, they're going to go on another date with them or whatever. And then you can be like, no, 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 don't don't hold everything. Don't go on a date with them. But then by the time that letter makes it to them, you know, they're engaged, you know, and you're heading out to see them. And they, they send a letter back to you saying this, but it doesn't reach you. And then by the time you actually make it to them, they're married and pregnant Fuck. I mean, like, I know Tinder and other dating apps aren't perfect, uh, but they're a little better than that kind of system. You know, th- and this is why people just tended to marry whoever the hell was close back then. You know, you, you just married whoever was in your town or maybe like the, the farmer's daughter next door, you know, because long distance relationships just really tough back then. Real bummers back then. Uh, you know what is good for relationships, though? Today's first sponsor. Confidence is good for relationships. Always has been, always will be. And, uh, and Dude Suckers, today's sponsor, 4Hims, 4Hims.com, all about building your confidence. Did you know that 66% of men lose their hair by age 35? Uh, thankfully, baldness can be optional thanks to 4Hims.com. And, uh, and 66% of you know men, some hair. I don't want you to think like, wait a minute, two-thirds of guys aren't completely bald by age 35. No, but they can lose you know a substantial amount of hair. 
Uh, thankfully, baldness optional thanks to forhims.com, one stop shop for hair loss, skin care, and sexual wellness for dudes. Uh, I've been using the uh, the Hims Goodnight Wrinkle Cream to give my skin the moisture it needs to have uh, my face look like a face and not like a, a mask of chalk, a mask of chalky skin. Uh, you know, there's there's like negative humidity in Coeur d'Alene uh, right now during the winter. The air is so, so painfully dry. Your skin just starts to crack after like a day if you don't lotion it. We have several humidifiers in our house. Uh, I've become a big, big fan of lotions. And the Goodnight Wrinkle Cream is formulated with caffeine that I've just found out. Uh, I enjoy both in my belly, got a lot in there right now, and also on my face. Uh, keep my face skin moist, just like Ed Gein would like. Uh, but seriously, check out, uh, you know, check out this lotion. Uh, check out how uh, Hims connects you with real doctors and medical grade solutions to treat hair loss. They, they got well-known generic equivalents, to name brand prescriptions that help keep your hair, you know, where you want it on your head. They're not using snake oil pills or gas station counter supplements. So order now. Time suckers get a get a trial month of Hims for just five dollars today. Right now, while supplies last. See website for full details. This would cost hundreds if you went to the doctor or a pharmacy. Go to fourhims.com slash timesuck. That's F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com slash timesuck, fourhims.com slash timesuck. Link in today's episode description. Now back to the story of someone who didn't have the luxury of worrying about hair loss or skin care. Uh, before we go further in the timeline, Let's talk for for a moment here about the Underground Railroad that Harriet Tubman would devote so much of her life to. Despite what the name may indicate, the Underground Railroad was neither underground nor a railroad. And if you look enough on YouTube, it is kind of sad how many people don't understand that. Uh, Some people think that back in the mid-19th century, a vast, literally underground network of railroads was built with fucking trains and everything, which is preposterous. Like they, <laughs> the nation was barely getting trains above ground at that time. They didn't have just hundreds and hundreds of miles of underground tunnels. You, uh, I don't know how anyone would believe that, but people do. Um, no, and, and yeah, not a railroad. There was, it was actually a system of above ground, just uh, like trails, you know. Uh, uh, s- some of it was wormholes. There were uh, some wormholes created by wizards to help Sasquatches and unicorns escape from hunters and early cryptozoologists. Uh, that, of course, is not true. No. It was just a, it was a term. Underground was a term used because the runaway slaves were trying to remain as inconspicuous as possible, appear to be off the grid. Railroad was the term used because various routes to the north and elsewhere out of the country were being used for mass transportation. Uh, those who helped orchestrate and operate these routes would use, and it wasn't like roads or anything. It was it could literally just be like like trails or not even like a noticeable trail. Just like this is the area you head through. Um, but yeah, those who helped orchestrate and operate these routes would use code that originated from the railroad industry uh, in order to secretly communicate. Here's some of the code words. Uh, the conductor was whoever was leading a group of slaves north. Stations were just safe houses, just the homes of people, you know, friendly to the cause. Station masters were owners of the safe houses. A parcel was a term used for a group of fugitives expected to, to arrive up north. Uh, a load of potatoes Describe slaves hiding under produce in a wagon. And I guess parcel could, you know, didn't have to be up north. It could be like a, a parcel could be expected to, to arrive uh, at a station, a.k.a. safe house. That could be in the south. Uh, heaven was freedom. Uh, so they weren't always just train terms, just other secret co- code words. A drinking gourd uh, described the Big Dipper star formation that they, they would use heavily in navigation, you know, navigating uh, up north. The phrase is, fuck that guy. Uh, he's a snitch and cut that motherfucker. 
uh, were also used to describe pro-slavery parties or bounty hunters not interested in helping anyone's escape to freedom, uh, which, of course, is nonsense. Uh, messages were also incorporated into songs that slaves would sing while working to inform others of their plans for escape and to pass on information of how they themselves could escape. So I didn't know this. I knew it was common, like in plantations and such, out in the field for, for people to sing songs to uh, boost their spirits and pass the time. I didn't know that they that a lot of these songs were, uh, you know, full of code words to help people move along the Underground Railroad and escape to freedom. Wade in the Water. Uh, Tubman used the song Wade in the Water to tell slaves to get into the water to avoid being seen and make it through to the north. Not from, uh, sure if this one has a, uh, a you know, standard melody or rhythm. Some of these songs didn't. You know, you, you listen to different renditions of these songs on YouTube and uh, people's interpretations of these songs and the melody can uh, change substantially. So forgive me if this isn't the way uh, you're used to hearing it, but the chorus would be wade in the water, wade in the water children. Like, you know, wade in the water, God's going to trouble the water. Who are those children all dressed in red? God's going to trouble the water. Must be the ones that Moses led. Uh, steal away was a song slaves would sing to let others know that someone was about to escape. You know, steal away to Jesus. Steal away, steal away home. I ain't got long to stay here. My Lord calls me. He calls me, but the thunder, the trumpet sounded in my soul. I ain't got long to stay here. I don't know how to fucking sing these, but I feel weird just reading the lyrics. Uh, I couldn't locate the official name, but this next song was sung uh, to sometimes just kind of uh, distract uh, masters just kind of used it to, to get this song into, uh, you know, slave masters' heads to get them kind of frustrated and thinking about the song and, and, and not maybe notice a possible escape. It was, uh, Heavenly Father watching us all. We take from each other, give nothing at all. Well, it's a doggone shame, but never too late for change. Mm. So if your luck runs low, just reach out and call his name. His name, Yamo be there. Oh, up and over, Yamo be there. Yamo be there. Oh, up and over, Yamo be there. Fucking nailed it. I don't think I've ever Michael motherfucking McDonald with a full first verse. No music in my ears. That was from the heart. That was just, that's imprinted on my soul now. God, that was good. Hope you enjoyed that. <laughs> Back to seriousness now. The song, uh, that of course was not a, not a slave song. In my head, I just hoped that someone was like, I'm so sick of this silly bullshit in this podcast. But, but they, this is like the first episode they listen to and they're not used to just nonsense. And, uh, and for the rest of their lives, they think that the song Yam Will Be There was actually originally uh, uh, like, a, like a slave song, Song in Fields. Uh, the song Sweet Chariot, I didn't know this. I do know the song Sweet Chariot. Uh, it, it seems that that song in all likelihood started off as a slave song sung to inform surrounding slaves that the Sweet Chariot, a.k.a. Underground Railroad, was going to swing low, come down south, and take them to freedom up north, carry me home. So that's swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to carry me home. Right? We know that one. Uh, some people do think that song was written by a slave named Wallace Willis, who may have also written Steal Away to Jesus. Not much is known about Willis, uh, and there is no definitive proof of the song's exact origins, but a lot of people think it was that guy. Uh, the song Follow the Drinking Gourd 
was the most complex song of, of, of this ilk in terms of hidden messages. It basically laid out step-by-step instructions of how to get from Alabama to Ohio specifically. Uh, and again, I am, I'm going to try to sing this. It's my own melody. I did look up this one quite a bit. I watched a, a variety of versions. And again, everyone sang it differently. But, you know, it was something like, uh, when the sun comes back and the first quail calls, follow the drinking gourd. For the old man is waiting for to carry you to freedom if you follow the drinking gourd. The riverbank, I oh, fuck, I, I, this is too long for me to keep doing. It says the riverbank makes a very good road. I'm two verses in, I'm already like, how do I keep this up? The riverbank uh, makes a very good road. The dead trees will show you the way. Left foot, peg foot, traveling on, follow the drinking gourd. The river ends between two hills, follow the drinking gourd. There's another river on the other side. Follow the drinking gourd. When the great big river meets the little river, follow the drinking gourd. For the old man is waiting for to carry you to freedom. Follow the drinking gourd. Couldn't help myself. Got into it there at the end. Uh, the song starts off by telling you when to start your journey. In the spring, when the sun comes back and the quail starts calling, specifically in April, the drinking gourd is a reference to the constellations we said before of the Big Dipper. Use that to navigate northward. Old man, nautical slang for the rank of captain. Uh, though there is no proof that this guy existed, it is rumored that a former sailor named or referred to, yeah, this is clearly not his birth name, Peg Leg Joe, was one of the people who met you on the bank of the Ohio River. Uh, the riverbank makes a very good road that refers to the bank of the Tombiggie River. Dead trees show the way means that if you feel as though you've lost direction, moss grows on the north side of dead trees, uh, mostly on the dead side of north trees. So if you find a dead tree, uh, you know, you find your way. Sometimes people uh, would mark trees with mud or charcoal if moss was lacking. Left foot, peg foot, again, references a supposed peg leg Joe. Uh, the river ends between two hills. That can mean two things. Either it could uh, mean that the path they're referring to could uh, be between the Woodle Mountain and another smaller mountain, or that Woodle Mountain uh, has what's known as a twin cone profile. So the two hills may be just one mountain. The river's on the other side. That's the Tennessee River. When the... Uh, Great Big River meets the Little River uh, is the area in Paducah, Kentucky, where the Tennessee River intersects with the Ohio River. Uh, for the old man is waiting. Once again, refers uh, to this fucking peg leg Joe character. Uh, <laughs> uh, it said that he would wait on the banks of the Ohio River and guide people there once he made it across. And I imagine you have to be thinking peg leg Joe has to be one of my made up uh, naughty lies. No, yeah, there really was possibly a strange character in the tale of the Underground Railroad uh, referred to as peg leg Joe. And uh, and that whole that whole moss thing, um, yeah, that is that is a, a true navigational thing where like moss does to, does tend to ground more on the north side of trees in the northern hemisphere. In the southern hemisphere, uh, it grows more on the south uh, side of the tree, and on a, on a flat earth, it doesn't grow at all because that's fucking horseshit. Okay, uh, now let's talk about some dates and routes. It's believed the Underground Railroad began around 1810, would operate through the passage of the Emancipation Proclamation. In 1863, uh, reached prominence from 1850 to 1860 with uh, it's estimated that around 100,000 slaves made the run to freedom during that decade alone. Pretty, pretty incredible. There were three primary major routes with several other lesser, you know, uh, known routes, less popular routes that we won't get into today. Because, again, it's not like this formalized thing. Uh, Not really. You know, they would just have, uh, you know, some routes that would just kind of develop organically based on 
uh, people that were friendly to the cause they could find to, to let uh, runaway slaves stay in their homes, you know, based on, uh, you know, whoever was kind of leading the group that time. Uh, but the eastern route, the main eastern route, uh, ran ran mainly from Richard, Virginia, uh, with some joining from as far south as Augusta, Georgia, others as uh, far west as Knoxville, Tennessee. This route would make stops in Philly, New York, and Boston. An alternative route for those held captive in the coastal cities of Georgia, South Carolina, and North Carolina was to head north via boat and arrive in the port cities of New York or Boston. Uh, slaves living in the southern portion of Georgia down into Florida would often choose to head south to the very tip of Florida and head towards the Bahamas. The route in the center of the country stretched from New Orleans all the way to St. Paul, Minnesota, roughly 12 Hundred miles. Uh, that route forks to the Kentucky-Missouri border with those choosing the uh, eastern route generally heading up to Detroit and those choosing the western route generally headed towards St. Paul or heading to St. Paul. Uh, some also chose to head due north to the, from the fork and make it to Chicago. Uh, for slaves on the western uh, border of Missouri, some would head west and hook around the top of the state by going through Kansas and Nebraska territories and finally stop in Cedar Rapids, the, that area of Iowa. And a typical journey to freedom generally began on a Saturday night or on Sunday because the uh, slave owners did, you know, generally go to church on Sundays, which does blow my mind. I know it's just a different time, but how weird is that? Got to pray to God about how to be the best slave owner you can be. Slave owners in God's own image. I mean, how truly ridiculous is that? And I'm joking around, but but slave owners did tend to be very religious, uh, tended to be Protestant Christians specifically, you know, so they would pray directly to God. And since people tend to pray— obviously about what's going on and generally what's going wrong in their lives, you know that when slaves would run away, uh, a lot of these Southern Christians would just pray for their slaves to be returned to them. So people, you know, truly at various points in history would get down on their their knees, cross their fingers and just be like, dear Heavenly Father, uh, please, please let someone uh, catch my runaway slave. Dear Lord, it's it's not like I beat them that often. You know, Lord, uh, you know, my heart is pure. I mean, sure, sometimes, you know, I whip them when they when they do sinful stuff like disobey me, dear Lord, or be tired after 20 days in a row of working in a hot field uh, for 14 hours a day. Uh, praise Jesus or look at me like I was being sinful when I was whipping one of their friends or kids, dear Lord. Please, God, let someone stop them from reaching a place where they can live their own lives and keep their own money and earn and raise children as they see fit. Please, dear, dear Lord, please bring them back to me for some righteous beatings. Uh, dear Lord, let me let me beat them nearly to death and then put them back to horrific, backbreaking work. And just please, God, let me get back to treating them like the animals I think them to be, oh Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. It's fucking crazy that that, uh, that would happen. But you know it did. You know it did. And uh, and people doing it believed they were righteous as they were doing it. We can be the most insane species. God, us meat sacks can be some, be some crazy folk. Uh, but seriously, most slaves would have Sunday off. Because, you know, uh, everybody be at church. So so if they were sneaking, if they were able to sneak out late Saturday night or early Sunday morning, they could get about a 24-hour head start on their slave masters, noticing they were gone. Uh, slaves typically would run to a nearby location where they'd been told they could meet a conductor. They would ordinarily hide and rest during the day, uh, reduce their chances of being spotted, as we kind of talked about with Harriet earlier. And, you know, and like with her, once night fell, they'd proceed under cover of darkness when it was cooler, harder to be seen, if you were a slave on the run on the Underground Railroad, your group would just trek through, you know, woods, fields, over mountains, through streams, cross rivers, all the while following that North Star, following the Big Dipper. Uh, if it was a cloudy night, you know, and you couldn't rely on the sky for direction, you know, then you'd have the moss on trees to kind of fall back on, you know, like uh, like I mentioned earlier. 
you know, because the northern hemisphere, again, it tends to grow more on the north side of the tree. You, you travel, you'd make stops at the homes of trusted allies where you could rest comfortably, you know, get something to eat. Some station masters would uh, would have transportation for you in the form of a wagon. You'd you'd lay hidden under some kind of hay or other crop and be driven to the next town. Hopefully, you find your way to the home of somebody who had a stockpile of supplies such as shoes. You know, your feet are probably aching, you know, uh, you know, maybe a little money to help you get settled once you finally make it north. You know, once you once you reach uh, some northern destination, unless it's Canada, you still don't get to feel safe because of all those goddamn bounty hunters I was talking about trying to catch you all the time. Uh, and by the way, the bounty, hunter, bounty hunters weren't called bounty hunters. I keep calling them bounty hunters. Uh, they were called law enforcement officers. I just I just prefer the term bounty hunter because that's that's what they were. You know, they were armed people uh, tracking down humans, trying to live a free life so they could collect a reward, collect some essentially ransom. To me, that sounds like a bounty hunter. Uh, now that we have a little understanding of how the Underground Railroad worked, a vast network of abolitionists, freedmen, uh, former slaves, good Samaritans, all working together to help slaves get, uh, you know, uh, freed from slave states and, and get to either the Union States or Canada or sometimes elsewhere out of the country, you know, sometimes down south out to the, you know, Caribbean. Uh, now that we know that, let's hop back into the Tubman timeline. We left off in 1851 with uh, Harriet sneaking back down into Maryland for another trip, only to find out that her husband, John, had remarried. Uh, and again, to be fair, you know, he hadn't heard from her in, in about two years. Okay, so now spring of 1857, Harriet rushes back to Maryland yet again when she receives word that her parents are in trouble down there for helping and hiding uh, the infamous Dover 8. In March of 1857, eight slaves, the Dover 8 from Dorchester County, Maryland, escaped following a route provided by Harriet Tubman, uh, who we know also provided, you know, uh, previously, I'm sorry, we know previously she escaped from Dorchester County. Uh, the group was possibly on their way to meet with famed abolitionist Thomas Garrett in Wilmington, Delaware. Tubman had told the fugitives to contact Thomas Otwell, a free black man and under railroad, uh, underground railroad conductor in Dover, Delaware, uh, she had worked with before. Unfortunately, this time, instead of guiding them north to the next stop on the railroad, uh, he led them to a Dover jail in expectation of collecting that $3,000 reward that were out for them, which is over $80,000 in today's money. And apparently that, that large amount of money was just too tempting for him to pass up. However, despite the betrayal, the Dover 8 would be able to escape from jail and eventually make their way to freedom. Uh, Otwell led the group to what was supposed to be a safe house for the night, but turned out to be, again, this Dover jail. Uh, where the local sheriff, Sheriff Green, was waiting for him. Unfortunately, for he and Otwell, the group was running late, so Green decided to go to bed. Uh, Sheriff Green decided to go to bed around 2 a.m. The group arrived at the jail around 4 a.m. They were met by Hollis. He tried to sneak him into uh, into a room of the jail, but one of the slaves named Henry uh, Prideau noticed that the windows in the room had bars over them because it's not like this was an obvious jail. It looked like a house and it happened to have some bars in some of the windows. He pointed that out to the group, and they decided to stay in the hallway for the time being, and Sheriff Green uh, was woke up or awoken, he came into the hallway to uh, uh, to greet him and uh, trying to help get him into that room where they could lock him up. He had no luck. He wasn't able to talk him into going in there. He goes back to his living quarters to retrieve his gun. However, becoming uh, ever more leery of the situation, the group followed Green into his room. Prideau grabbed a fireplace shovel, scooped out some coals from the fire, threw them all around the room to set the room on fire. He then grabbed the fireplace poker, busted out a window so his you know fellow uh, travelers could escape. And then Prideau held off Green and Hollis. Uh, and then the rest of the group made the 12-foot jump to the ground, made a break for it. Green fired at Prideau. Uh, th thankfully, the pistol jammed. Prideau was able to jump out the window himself. He successfully made the journey to Wilmington, where he met with Thomas Garrett. Six others of the group went back to Otwell's house, 
where they captured him and threatened to kill him if he didn't actually help him out this time. So now, uh, well, their their traitor uh, obliged and helped them uh, reach Philadelphia. So that's seven of them are now uh, free. And then the last fugitive who somehow got separated from her husband and the rest of the group after the flee from uh, fleeing from jail, uh, she would eventually be reunited with her husband in Canada. So rare happy ending to that tale. Well, Harriet's parents lived in a cabin about 20 miles north of the group owner's farm, uh, the group's owner's farm. So it's possible that the eight you know, may have stayed the night with them at some point in their journey. And, uh, and now they were worried about getting into a lot of trouble for helping them. So after hearing about her parents, you know, uh, you know, being worried, uh, Harriet buys herself a train ticket, heads down as quickly as she could. Very risky. Again, with all the bounty hunters, all the stuff, you know, very risky for her to, uh, to sneak back down there where she could be, you know, taken herself. She takes her parents' age and health into consideration. They're both in their seventies at the time. She gets a horse and some supplies in order, fashions a carriage together so her parents don't have to walk. And she, she, you know, rides with them all the way up into New York, stopping off in Auburn, New York, at the residence of William Seward, lawyer, New York governor, senator, President Lincoln's secretary of state. From there, they move on to St. Catharines in Canada, where they reside for the next two years. Uh, Harriet then would move from Philadelphia to St. Catharines to help her parents uh, up in Canada as well. But then her mother, Rit, found it, found it difficult to handle the tough Canadian winters. And the three moved back to the States and resided in Auburn, New York, where Harriet would also reside uh, for much of uh, the rest of her life and where Harriet was able to buy seven acres of land from Governor Seward and give her folks a place to live. Uh, So there were some nice people back then doing some nice things. The next chapter in Harriet's long story connects her to last week's Pinkerton suck. Uh, We learned in that suck that Alan, Alan Pinkerton, founder of the Pinkerton Detective Agency, was a fan of famous abolitionist John Brown. And that he financially supported John's abolitionist efforts and even helped transport John and 11 freed slaves once on a train from Chicago to Detroit. Well, Harriet Tubman had an even closer relationship with John Brown. In an experiment, uh, radical even by today's surgical standards, Harriet and John were quite literally attached at the hip. They were sewn together in an attempt to show that white and black Americans could truly, literally coexist. They wanted to demonstrate to others that if they, if these two could live happily sewn together, forced to live basically as one person, then the rest of the country should at least be able to live in the same neighborhoods. Uh, the experiment would fail six months later when John Brown would grow ill and pass away after some kind of a infection, probably brought on by the surgery. And then fearing that, the, that a separation would kill Harriet as well, doctors advised her not to remove John's body from her own and just kind of drag him around. And she would drag his lifeless corpse around for the rest of her long life. By the 1870s, she was literally just dragging around this dude's skeleton. Uh, the stitches had long faded away. Uh, medically, she, she could have easily been parted at this point, but psychologically, she, she become used to his presence. And she refused to have her John, uh, as she'd grown accustomed to calling him, taken from her. Finally, when it seemed like uh, you know she would take John Brown's skeleton to an early grave, she was helped by today's sponsor. She was helped by today's sponsor and freed from her unnatural attachment. Today's Time Soak is brought to you by Woody's Paranormal Demon Remover. Yes! Woody, the world's first and only puppet exorcist. Uh, Joe, if you're out there, if you're can you bring Woody in here for the YouTube viewers? I forgot to, to grab him. Let us, let's let everybody see Woody if, if you'd like to hop over on YouTube and check him out. Woody is the world's first and only pup. Thank you so much. Joe's hopping in here. Sneaky handout of Woody. We got Woody here. Uh, Woody doesn't doesn't keep you know demons and unwanted spirits out of your fun holes with his paranormal rape repellent. He also can remove demons from your soul, or uh, in such cases as Harriet's, she, he could remove you know uh, uh, 
like, you know, a, a demon for me to attach to your physical body. You know, he did. Hey, everybody, it's me, Woody. Demons don't always try and sneak in your pooper or your front pooper. Even I know that. <laughs> sometimes they try and sneak in your soul. And then sometimes they show up as a skeleton. Uh, <laughs> oh, what am I supposed to be saying now? Oh, geez. Oh, goodness. Looks like my little doll feet hit the notes and really jumped around in the story, which makes things complicated. Oh, sorry about that. Sorry about my clumsy old puppet feet. This wasn't supposed to go on nearly this long, and you're probably getting out of breath. But hey, anyway, sometimes people show up as a skeleton. An old-time doctor showed to your hip in a crazy experiment. That's when you call me. And I get out my demon knives. They look like real knives, but they're coated in my patent-pending demon repellent. And I just get to cut. You just hold still. Hold still and just know there's a 55% chance you're going to live through it. That's pretty good odds. Better than a coin toss. More than half the time, you'll be demon-free and only have many, many knife scars to remind you of what happened. Whee! Of course, that's not today's sponsor. Oh, today's Times Look is brought to you by Lisa Mattresses, and I'm really hoping Lisa didn't listen to the past two minutes of this show. Today's Times Look is brought to you by Lisa. Quality night's sleep helps you recover from distractions faster, prevent burnout, make better decisions, improve your memory, uh, overall make fewer mistakes. It's not marketing, it's science. Uh, to design a better mattress to give you a quality night's sleep, Lisa leveraged 30-plus years of experience and hundreds of hours of scientific testing to develop the perfect mattress for all body shapes and sleeping styles. And, and Lisa, Lisa listeners, I'm, I'm, la- I'm laughing, obviously, because of the previous things I just said. Not because of Lisa. I love my Lisa. Love that foam. All three foam layers. Two-inch comfort foam layer on top. Two-inch memory foam layer. Six-inch core foam layer. All those, all those layers leave my back feeling so good. Uh, I am missing a part of a disc from back surgery uh, many years ago. So I, I do need to get the proper support, right? Can't be too mushy, can't be too firm, my back's all jacked up. And I get that kind of support with Lisa. It gets, gets them that good sleep, that, that kind of sleep that makes you want to wake up ready to immediately put some sexy moves on your sexy lady. Put that mattress to the test. Hey, Lucifina. Uh, Lindsay's probably rolling her eyes right now. Uh, so give yourself the gift of a better night's rest this holiday. Uh, get after some of that good old mattress loving, uh, some Lisa loving. Get $160 off a Lisa mattress at lisa.com slash timesuck. Use promo code timesuck at checkout. That's L-E-E-S-A dot com slash timesuck promo code timesuck. Link in today's episode description. Ah, and now we're back. And now we're, that was, that was a long break. I know it's a heavy topic. I needed to uh, take a break into weird for a while. Uh, we're talking about Harriet Tubman's real relationship with abolitionist John Brown. Now, I hope Woody, he was laying on the floor. Oh, God, he's laying on the face down with his arms out. I hope he's not pissed. Uh, like a sad Woody. Uh, we all know that Harriet wasn't sewn to John Brown, right? I hope we know that. I hope we all know that with some silliness. Harriet was introduced to abolitionist James John Brown, though, in 1858. Uh, Brown, former cattle rancher, tannery owner, moved to Pennsylvania to Springfield, Massachusetts, where he first met abolitionist Sojourner Truth. Frederick Douglass, Sojourner, a fabulous, a famous, Jesus, abolitionist and women's rights activist who escaped from slavery, uh, just like Harriet, who had taken her son's slave owner to court in New York to win his freedom and did actually win. She was the first black woman to win such a case in American history. 
In 2014, uh, she was included in the Smithsonian Magazine's list of 100 most significant Americans of all time. Awesome. Uh, Unbelievably, I was not even submitted for consideration of that list, which is frustrating. But uh, Frederick Douglass also escaped slavery, went on to become a famous orator, leader of the abolitionist movement in New York and Massachusetts, a brilliant writer and speechmaker, just a brilliant dude in general. He was often uh, used as a living example of how African-Americans were every bit the intellectual equals of their white counterparts. Uh, and after spending time with Sojourner and Frederick, John Brown quickly became very sympathetic to the abolitionist movement, became then a leader of the abolitionist movement, even though he's a white dude. Uh, he did think, though, that the peaceful nature of the movement was holding it back from making true progress. Uh, Brown not only thought that violence and force could be useful, as we learned with the Pinkerton suck, he thought that it was the only way of truly striking fear into the hearts of slave owners to create real change. Uh, He would travel the country freeing slaves where he could uh, uh, attempt to recruit fighters to join his army. During a trip to Ontario, Canada, John Brown was introduced to Harriet Tubman. She quickly became a confidant due to her uh, uh, incredible knowledge of escape routes and ability to execute plans stealthily. Uh, Harriet wowed Brown to the point with her expertise that he began to refer to her as General Tubman. And General Tubman helped in the planning of Brown's infamous failed attack on Harper's Ferry uh, that we also mentioned the Pinkerton Suck, where John Brown gathered a group of 20 other men, some white, some black, free man slaves, uh, to attempt a takeover of the federal military arsenal in Harper's Ferry, uh, Virginia, now West Virginia. Brown, uh, Brown uh, hoped that the weapons captured in the seizure could help spur a slave uprising throughout southern plantations, right? Get some killing in the name of uh, a little rage against the fucking machine. Uh, some reports speculate that Harriet Tubman was a, uh, to assist John Brown on this mission, but for whatever reason, probably illness, she was unable to accompany the men. Uh, not sure if I mentioned that when John uh, personally led this men into battle, he was 59 years old, man. John Chuck fucking Norris Brown. And this tale is worth mentioning again this week. The abolitionists rented a farm near the armory and from there prepared for their attack. Around 1 a.m., middle of the night, on October 16th, 1859, this group of freedom fighters uh, freedom fighters converged on the armory, surprising one man, shooting him as he attempted to flee. The sound of the gunshot woke a man named Dr. John Starry. But when he went outside to see what had happened, he was confronted by, Dr., uh, by John Brown's group. Dr. Starry quickly explained he was a doctor and was ushered over to a man who had been shot. Upon examining the man and determining there was nothing he could do to help him, Brown then allowed Starry to escape, and this would prove to be a fatal error. Uh, because Starry would ride to nearby homes and alert every family he could find, uh, you know, in the community of Charles Charlestown, where the church bells then began to be rung in order to awaken and alert all the citizens. And then the citizens who were able to fight quickly went to Harper's Ferry, joined forces with the remaining military presence there. Uh, though John Brown's men uh, initial attack had went well uh, due to catching the area completely off guard, they were initially able to capture the armory and hold about 60 hostages. Uh, they were unable to hold off the oncoming onslaught of the mob that Dr. Starr had sent their way. That motherfucker. On top of the forces already in the area, word reached a group of Marines who were stationed nearby in Baltimore, led by uh, then-Lieutenant Colonel Robert E. Lee, heard of him. Uh, the Marines used, uh, they, they rushed Harper's Ferry, pinned Brown down in an engine room across the street from the armory. Finally, on October 18th, after 10 of his men were killed and another five had been captured, Brown was taken into custody, tried convicted of treason in the state of Virginia, sentenced to hang and executed. He would say after his sentencing, now, if it is deemed necessary that I should forfeit my life 
for the furtherance of the ends of justice and mingle my blood further with the blood of millions in this slave country whose rights are disregarded by wicked, cruel, and unjust enactments, I say, let it be done. And that is some badass shit to say when you're on your way to die. A true martyr to the cause. Man, surprise, Rage Against the Machine did not sing a song about this dude. Just dying in the name of. Uh, December 2nd, right before John Brown is hanged, he handed the executioner a piece of paper that read, I, John Brown, am now quite certain that the crimes of this guilty land will never be purged away with blood. Frederick Douglass said of him, though a white gentleman, he is in sympathy with the black man as deeply interested in our cause as though his own soul had been pierced with the iron of slavery. Harriet Tubman, among many others, would go on to praise Brown as a true martyr. Uh, His execution was felt on a national scale and would only raise the growing racial tensions of the nation. 1860, the days of the Underground Railroad coming to an end as the Civil War is about to begin. Uh, 35-year-old Harriet continues to help, uh, you know, free those who are enslaved, sometimes accidentally. She can't help herself. Uh, One day in New York, she ended up rescuing one dude uh, simply while just walking around in New York. She sees a guy named Charles Nall being led away by a U.S. Marshal who had been looking for him, one of those bounty hunters. Tubman helped to fight the Marshal off. Fucking beats this Marshal off of him. Allows Nall, uh, this man, to, uh, to flee, and then he would later be able to buy his freedom. Uh, Harriet was also trying to get the last of her family still enslaved in Maryland up north. She believed that her sister Rachel and Rachel's children were stuck in Dorchester County, Maryland over a decade after she'd escaped. Uh, Harriet made her final rescue journey to Maryland prior to the Civil War in December of 1860, only to arrive and find out that her sister had previously passed away. Damn shitty communication back then. Man, I know it can be annoying to see people's faces stuck into their phones all the time, but at least we can find people now, find people who aren't, uh, you know, choosing to ignore us. We can find them instantaneously. Uh, unable to locate either of Rachel's children in Maryland, Harriet instead chooses to bring back the Enos family. There are three kids and one other couple because, again, saint. Uh, over the over the de- near decade she spent leading people to freedom, it's said that Harriet made a total of 19 trips south, was responsible for up to 300 slaves uh, now living free lives through either direct guidance or spoken advice on how to make the trek themselves. Uh, She'd say in 1896, I was the conductor of the Underground Railroad for eight years, and I can say what most conductors can't say. I never ran my train off the track, and I never lost a passenger. That's some more badass shit. Uh, And just because she was done with the Underground Railroad once the Civil War broke out, that didn't mean she was done fighting for the cause. Not even close. Let's talk now about her Civil War efforts. Uh, Shortly after President Abraham Lincoln's victory in 1860, the racial tension in the country finally started coming to a head. In December of that year, South Carolina submitted an ordinance of secession. Six other states quickly joined in and formed the Confederacy. I guess the forming of the Confederacy began. The Union was now, uh, you know, uh, to the, the north and the Confederates were the south. The Confederate Army of South Carolina attacked the last remaining Union force at Fort Sumner. And South Carolina was now 100% in the hands of the south. From this moment, a full-scale civil war was on. Let's get it on. Uh, African-Americans were more than willing to fight for the North that had been so welcoming to them. Uh, abolitionist Frederick Douglass highly encouraged them to, uh, to do so, to fight as a show of good faith to their new white brothers and sisters. Uh, 36-ish year old Harriet Tubman joined the Massachusetts military as a volunteer in 1861. She was the only African-American in her group Fearless. The woman was fearless. 
Uh, the troop marched to Fort Monroe in Virginia. Once they got there, Harriet supported the troops by doing all of her old domestic chores from her childhood, such as cooking, doing laundry, offering nursing assistance for those wounded in battle. The following year, in 1862, Harriet and the troops she assisted would march further south into Port, Port Royal, uh, South Carolina, or Port Royal. Pri- there, Harriet worked hand-in-hand with the group's uh, doctor. Her knowledge of plant and root-based medicine proved invaluable to the wounded and dying soldiers. Uh, the Emancipation Proclamation is put into effect on January 1st, 1863. And this freed all slaves, so now they could fully enlist in the military to help defeat their former masters. Uh, the Presidential Proclamation and Executive Order changed the federal legal status of more than 3.5 million enslaved African Americans in the designated areas of the South from slave to free citizen. As soon as a slave escaped the control of the Confederate government by running away or through advances of federal troops, the former slave now became legally free. During the final two years of the war, close to 180,000 black troops would serve the Union. Uh, there still wasn't full equality, of course, as we know about our history. Uh, you know, black soldiers were paid $10 a month with a $3 deduction for the cost of their uniform, while white soldiers were paid $13 a month and didn't have to pay for their uniform. Uh, this was eventually fixed to where both white and black soldiers were paid the same and black soldiers were given back uh, pay for the amount they were paid less. Uh, however, there was still a lot of discrimination against women. Uh, Harriet would earn uh, an average of only $5.50 a month during her three-year service in this war. Three years, she assisted the Union military out in the field. She was a true participant in the Civil War, and yet she'd have to earn extra money to support herself during her war effort by selling pies and things like that uh, to, to keep herself going. Uh, 1863, Harry was even put in charge of a group of spies during the war. Uh, she was t- tasked with devising escape routes for any slaves uh, that were that were free during battle. Uh, she even participated in combat on June 2nd, 1863. She became the first woman in U.S. military history to lead a raid. As if she hadn't done enough impressive shit already. She led a group of soldiers on a mission to destroy Confederate outposts along the uh, Coombe River and free as many slaves as they found in the process. The, the mission proved to be more than successful as Harriet and her troops were able to capture large collections of weaponry, food, cotton, all while managing to liberate around 750 slaves. Harriet would spend the last two years of the war continuing to spy, cook, nurse until the Confederacy finally surrendered in April 1865. She would return home to the small city of Auburn, New York, about 15,000 residents back in 1865, and, and she would continue to tend to her aging parents. I mean, this, this lady really is... The fucking saints. Ridiculous. Once out of the military, Harriet fought another fight, her longest one, getting the U.S. government to pay her fairly for her military service. She didn't just accept that uh, bullshit amount of money they gave her. her. Her fight to receive what she deemed fair compensation for her service would last 34 years. She would appeal her compensation once in 1865, then again in 1867. Some of her influential friends would write letters to be published in newspapers pleading her case that she deserved a proper veteran's pension. In 1869, Harriet would meet a man named Nelson Davis, a former farmer, veteran of the North Carolina Army, who had made his way north after the war. Uh, He stopped at Harriet's house to rest for a day or two while he became acclimated to the area. Davis began working as a local bricklayer, all the while courting Harriet, even though she was 22 years older than uh, he was. Uh, March 18, 1869, the two were married. Hail Lucifina! If the government wasn't going to compensate her for her war efforts, you know, helping young men stay alive, she was uh, going to take on her own compensation in the form of young dick. Yes. One of Harriet's most famous quotes is, I decided if they wouldn't give me a check, I'd take my payment in young dick. It's actually written on her tombstone. Good for her. 
Uh, please hold off on the angry emails, by the way. If it's okay for me to make inappropriate jokes about other suck subjects, it's fucking okay today. Hail Nimrod. Uh, actually, I don't think uh, things were, were red hot in the loving department because like many mid-19th century humans, including former suck subject Doc Holliday, Nelson Davis was unfortunately a lunger. Uh, he had tuberculosis. Uh, his ability to work with sporadic and late 1869 American writer and historian Sarah Hopkins Bradford would publish an authorized 132-page biography about Harriet's life. And then the $1,200 in proceeds were given directly to Harriet and her family in order to ease their financial burden. Because she's been taking care of her elderly parents. Now she's taking care of her young husband. Uh, Harriet's father, Benjamin, does pass away then in 1871 at the age of 84. In 1873, uh, someone would scam Harriet. Man, of all the people to scam, you got to scam Harriet. Uh, People scamming this hero. Two men stayed with her for a few days. Uh, Probably out of the good of her heart. She opened up her doors. They approached her, claimed to be in possession of some gold they had managed to sneak out of South Carolina. They estimated the gold to be worth about five grand, but they're willing to sell it to Harriet for, you know, two grand in cash. And uh, she knew that wealthy white Southerners would often hide or bury valuables whenever the Union Army was threatening their area. So what the men were saying didn't seem that far-fetched. And giving some some debt she had, uh, it was an opportunity she felt she couldn't pass up. She asked to borrow some money from a local wealthy real estate developer she was friends with named Anthony Shimmer. The two men told Harriet to meet them in the woods one night. They could do the exchange under cover of darkness. Once Harriet got deep enough into the woods, the two men attacked her and knocked her out with some chloroform. When she awoke some time later, she was bound and gagged and her purse containing the money was gone. God dang it, man. I'd love to say that these men were caught and beaten, uh, but I think they did get away with it. But Harriet... She was not a victim. She refused to define herself as a victim. She refused to let something like that make her scared or keep her from doing good in the world. She's truly an inspiration, lesson for us all. And she just kept it going, kept doing more good stuff. In 1874, Harriet and her husband would adopt a baby girl named Gertie. Later in 1874, New York Congressman Clinton D. McDougal, along with Wisconsin Congressman Jerry W. Hazelton, uh, introduced a bill that would pay Harriet a lump sum of $2,000 for her service during the Civil War. Right? Finally! politicians doing the right thing and to get her that money. Uh, her name's on everybody's mind again, especially in New York. Once uh, word got out about her being attacked and the, the bill passed in the House, but then was shot down in the Senate. Fucking assholes uh, due to lack of documentation. Uh, but Harriet, again, she would she would not give up. She would continue to fight for fair compensation. In 1880, Harriet's mother, Ritt, passes away at the age of 93. In 1886, another biography about Harriet's life published uh, in, in another effort to help her financially. In 1888, her husband, Nelson Davis, passes away from tuberculosis. Uh, now Harriet is eligible to receive at least his military pension, right? Uh, she receives the military widow's pension of $8 a month. Not much, but it gives her a little bit of stable income. 1896, with help from her local bank and the local African uh, Methodist Episcopal Zion Church, she's able to win a bid to buy a 25-acre uh, piece of land adjacent to her current property for just under $1,500. Cool what she does this uh, with this property later. We'll find out here soon. 1897, honored in Boston for her lifetime of service to her country. And then she would actually have to sell one of her cows in order to afford to uh, the train ticket to go receive her award. 1898, she submits yet another request for a lump sum of $1,800 in back payment for military service. Still doesn't get it. Finally, on January 19th, 19, or 1899, almost 35 years after the end of the Civil War, she requested a raise of her current $8 uh, a month widow's pension to kick it up to $25 per month, reflective of her veteran status, as well as 
the status of her deceased husband. The committee, the, excuse me, the committee of pensions stated that the typical pension for a nurse was $12 per month with only a few exceptions for making more than that. The two parties decided to meet in the middle. They did settle on $20 a month, which she did receive for the rest of her life. Finally, all that fighting pays off and she did, does receive some of that veteran's pay she had so bravely earned. Uh, while this financial fight was occurring at some point during the 1890s, unfortunately, Harriet's childhood brain trauma from being hit in the head with that two-pound weight when she was a kid flares back up. Uh, she begins to uh, feel what she described as constant buzzing in her head, along with constant headaches, uh, both of which make it very difficult for her to sleep. Uh, so Harriet, uh, you know, she didn't have a Lisa mattress. Uh, Harriet, now well into her 70s, undergoes brain surgery at the Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. And ch- this, this shit is the craziest part of the story I've read. We've read about a lot. I've talked about a lot of crazy, brave things already. This is mind boggling. In a show of legendary toughness, Harriet does get brain surgery, but refuses to be anesthetized. She refuses anesthesia. Instead, she chooses to literally bite down on a fucking bullet while they operate on her head. Yep. This is what all the books say. I have no reason to doubt this tale. It's just hard for me to process this actually happening. And she chose to do that because that was what the soldiers would do when she tended to them during their Civil War surgeries. They would bite down on a bullet during like amputations. Wow. I have led such a soft life. Uh, When I read stories like this, man, have I led a soft life. I have no story even remotely comparable to biting down on a bullet while someone is operating on my noggin. I, I think the worst pain... I think the worst pain I've probably ever been through, uh, probably really, really, like really bad diarrhea, like super bad, like, like the kind where it feels like, it feels like your butt lips have just been wiped with a rough grade of sandpaper and then your body has decided to poop salt water, right? Like that, that hurts. That does hurt. That kind of hurt when even after you put like a bunch of soothing aloe vera lotion on your butt lips, you still walk gingerly. Like the world's best NFL punter has just tried to kick you, uh, you know, through the goalposts about, you know, 50 yards out. Um, You walk real generally, just kind of like a weird waddle walk. uh, And then when your stomach starts to cramp and growl again, you you start wishing weird shit. Like you wish you could just poop soft serve ice cream, like, like, or maybe yogurt or or maybe best case, uh, slightly colder than room temperature lotion. Like, and not like shitty lotion, not like hotel lotion, like a silky, expensive, fancy lotion, you know, uh, the good stuff. That's what you want to poop. And then you wish you could wipe it with some new softer than ever baby, like wet wipe soaked in some type of numbing cream. But I don't think that really compares to forgoing anesthesia and biting down on a bullet to deal with the pain of having your head cut open. And she did that in her seventies, Harriet motherfucking Tubman. Hail Nimrod. Uh, Harriet was uh, always a supporter of the push for women's rights uh, also. Uh, She never got uh, hands-on in in her fight for women's rights like she did for the fighting for the freedom of uh, uh, African-Americans, but but she did fight for women's rights. She did think they were important, especially African-American women. She did think it was a worthy cause. The suffrage movement dated back nearly 50 years to 1848, and Harriet was a very popular speaker uh, on kind of like the the women's uh, suffrage movement circuit, if you will because of her incredible story and the notoriety she would bring to the movement. And she did travel to speak at conventions all over the Northeast late in life. Uh, you know, 
even though her, her never-ending generosity and charity made it difficult for her to afford to do so sometimes because she's not even being paid for a lot of this. 1903. Now at the age of 78, Harriet donates those 25 acres she'd, uh, she'd you know, won that bid on earlier to that, uh, you know, with the help of the church. She donated it, the land to the Zion Church under the condition they were to use it to build a home for the elderly. Five years later, her dream project is completed. And on June 23rd, 1908, Harriet, the Harriet Tubman Home for the Aged was now open. Things did not start off the way Harriet hoped, though, as the church implemented a $100 entrance fee for anyone wishing to be admitted. And Harriet would later say about this fee, quote, they make a rule that nobody should come in without they have $100. Now, I wanted to make a rule that nobody should come in unless they didn't have no money at all. Again, love her. Uh, By 1911, a long, uh, hard life finally was taking its toll on Harriet's body. She's now at least 86 years old, frail and sickly. She's admitted to the rest home named in her honor. Uh, She would spend the next two years of her life there until she finally succumbed to pneumonia and died on March 10th, 1913, surrounded by those she loved. Before she passed, she told everybody in the room, I got, oh, excuse me. She told everybody in the room, I go to prepare a place for you. Thinking of others. (laughs) <laughs> right to the very end. Uh, she would be buried in Fort Hill Cemetery in Auburn, New York with military honors. And that takes us out of today's Time's Up timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. Man, Harriet motherfucking Tubman. What a life she led. Started from nothing. Started really from, you know, with less than nothing. She started her life technically as property. Can you imagine that? Starting with your life in someone else's hands, you know, in this country, enslaved, legally beholden to the whims and wishes of another, another who walked free, you know, with their family, uh, you know, while you didn't get to be free with yours. Uh, Let's look at some stats really quick to show, just, you know, go remind everyone like the scope of slavery in in Harriet's, you know, when when she was born, how many uh, meat sacks just like Harriet were tragically enslaved. In the history of the transatlantic slave trade, uh, 1525 to 1826, or I'm sorry, sorry, 1866, 12 and a half million Africans were shipped to the New World. Of them, 10.7 million survived the dreaded Middle Passage, disembarking in North America, the Caribbean, South America. Only about, excuse me, only about 388,000 were transported directly from Africa to North America. Uh, the vast majority were taken to Central and South America and the Caribbean. Uh, think about that, hundreds of thousands taken to the United States, and then their children became slaves, and then their grandchildren did, and great-grandchildren, etc., uh, etc. And then by 1860, there would be 490,865, just under half a million, according to a 1860 census. And that and, and that's just in Virginia alone, uh, of the one of 15 slave states. Over the course of roughly 400 years in the Americas, it's impossible to determine how many total people were enslaved. Um, thought to be in the United States, just under four four million in the 1860 census. So over 10 times the amount initially brought over from Africa. So if 12.5 million slaves total were brought over to the new world, uh, and if and if slaves in other countries, you know, reproduced it at roughly the same rate they did in the U.S., how many total people were enslaved in the new world? I don't know, 100 million, 120 million, 125? The numbers are nuts. And here's some other random stats I found interesting. Uh, children typically comprised 26% or more of a slave ship's human cargo. On average, the voyage took just over two months. And because of filthy conditions, a range of epidemic pathogens and periodic breakouts of violent resistance, uh, because of all that, 12 to 13% of those who embarked did not survive the voyage. Voyage, excuse me. Uh, New York City 
was actually a major hub of the slave trade between 1732 and 1754 for a couple decades. Black slaves accounted for more than 35% of the total immigration through the port city of New York. In 1756, slaves made up about 25% of the populations of Kings, Queens, Richmond, New York, uh, and Westchester counties. Uh, the Gilder uh, Lerman Institute indicates that about a third of slave laborers were children and an eighth were elderly or crippled. Uh, slaves didn't just work on farms. They were hired out in, in other trades like factories, uh, you know, piers, manned sailing vessels. They built between 9,000 and 10,000 miles of railroad tracks by the time the Civil War broke out, representing a third of the nation's total and more than the mileage of Britain, France, or Germany. On the eve of the Civil War in 1860, there was a, a total of about 488,000 free uh, African-Americans live in the U.S., about 10% of the entire black population. Of those, 226,000 roughly lived in the north and just uh, under 262,000 down south. Thus, surprisingly, there were 35,000, uh, just under 36,000 more free black people living in the slave-owning South and in the North, and they stayed there during the Civil War. God, that had been some tense living. Uh, Maryland, Hublet, uh, Harriet Tubman's home state, was a state with the largest population of, of free blacks in 1860, 83,942, and the highest proportion of free versus enslaved blacks was 49.1% free. And that fact plus its location bordering the north is why it was such an important piece of the Underground Railroad puzzle. Now that we've had a little refresh on the scope of American slavery, let's see what the idiots of the internet have to say about Harriet Tubman. Brace yourselves. Idiots of the internet. 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 Uh, I went to a nice neutral YouTube channel for today's video, uh, biography.com. I check that site probably, probably once a week when we do uh, our sucks. They posted a video called Harriet Tubman, Civil Rights Activist, that, as you can imagine, goes over much of the info we went over today. And, and here's what a few dickweeds had to say. Chance Rogers posts, she was a tool. This story never held weight with me. I don't believe it. And then after a bunch of uh, people try to educate Chance, he posts, story makes no sense from a historical sense. Uh, doesn't make any sense from a historical sense. I think you meant stance. I know we, we all make mistakes. Uh, you know, if you would have written stance, you would have been grammatically correct, but the overall tone of what you're saying and what you're saying just still would make you intellectually idiotic. Uh, what part of the story makes no historical sense to you, you fucking idiot? Uh, the part where she was a slave, does that not make sense to you? Do you, don't, you don't think that happened? Uh, do you not believe in slavery? There are, believe it or not, American slavery deniers. I have met one. <laughs> it's insanity. Just didn't think it happened. Uh, do you find, uh, the part where she's a woman to make no historical sense to you? Uh, are you so sexist that you don't think a woman could do what she did? Uh, are, are you having problems with the part where she freed herself or freed others? Uh, like 99.9% .9 of obnoxious idiots, this, this person chance calls out somebody for being wrong and then presents zero evidence about how or why they are wrong. You know, and, and of course he doesn't present any evidence to back up his vague claim because he doesn't fucking have any. I hate shit like that. I hate ignorant criticism. Like, if you're going to criticize something, back it up with some facts or shut the fuck up. Uh, finally, User Style Collective calls out Chance posting willful ignorance at its worst. Nailed it. Hashtag nailed it. Uh, user A-Tube-4-View trolls in with all caps, all non-whites, their lovers, and their children will be terminated! Exclamation point. Of course, that is written in all caps. 90% uh, of all cap statements, in my experience, written on the web seem to be written by people trying to make up uh, in some kind of perceived volume what they clearly lack in intelligence. 
right? Just that whole vibe of, I can't think of anything smart to say, so I'm going to say something real stupid, real loud, because louder makes it righter, guys. I'll cast forever. Uh, hashtag shut the fuck up. You racist dirtbag. Uh, Paul Hugo goes full piece of shit posting, was good up until you mentioned visions and God. That's it for me. I don't do mental illness. Who says shit like that? I don't do mental illness. I don't do it, bro. Hey, bruh, bruh, you mentally ill? For real? All right, man, get the fuck out, man. I don't do mental illness. Uh, so you're just going to blow off all the good this person did in her life because she had a head injury that may have given her visions? What? Dude, I hope you never have or adopt any kids, you know? Uh, your son is bipolar, Mr. Hugo. Ah, shit, bro. So I guess I'm going to have to leave him at the hospital then, you know what I'm saying? Man, I don't do mental illness. He's only got two years of high school left. Shouldn't be too hard for him to make it on his own. I don't, I don't do that, man. I don't play with that. Uh, user Boss Hog Martinez goes full, just what the fuck, posting, can we not put people's faces on money? Really? Let them rest in paradise. What are you talking about? What crazy world do you live in, Boss Shog? Uh, what crazy world do you live in where like an illustration of someone's face keeps them from resting in some theoretical paradise? Like, you're so ignorant, I have a hard time processing how your brain even works. Why don't you get off YouTube? Get off YouTube, spend a few years using all your free time, hang out in a library. I want you to read any books the librarians recommend, all of them. I just love that you think like, like just some weird spiritual notion of because someone's face is on a on a form of currency in, in this world, they're unable to rest peacefully in another. What the fuck? Uh, user Jay Carter throws another log on the what the fuck pile, posting... I never understood how these stories are able to travel hundreds of years. What are you talking about? I want to I want to write that in all caps. What do you mean how do stories travel? 100 people write shit down. You wrote down that fucking nonsense on YouTube. Do you not think that people used to write things down? That's how shit travels, right? I mean, you know they, they had newspapers, biographers, you know di- diaries, court records. People wrote about people. And then those writings were passed along. Have you never heard of a fucking library? God, I hope you're sterile. I hope you don't vote. User hit my head posts. I hate when white narrate our story. All right, listen. If the narrator is accurate, the color of their skin should not matter. Amazed by how few people see the irony in this kind of thought being uh, like not being racist. Not, like they don't perceive it as being racist. Racism does not run one w- way. All right. It runs in all directions. I seriously doubt Harriet Tubman would care for that statement. Right. Hopefully someday, hopefully finally someday we can evaluate everybody uh, only on the integrity of their character, their abilities and actions, not on anything else. Not race uh, or gender, not sexual orientation or age or socioeconomic class. And I'm sure plenty of other categories I'm forgetting. We should be born equal, meet sex under Nimrod and people should judge us by our choices and not by our circumstances. Hail Nimrod. Uh, there's a fair amount of trollish race baiting I'm not even going to bring up. Just, you know, just just imagine a fair amount of N-bombs and you fucking get it. Uh, but there also was, I was very happy to see an overwhelming majority of positive loving comments. Uh, stuff like this. We'll leave on a, on a good note on the today. User Greg Hunt writes, what a brave soul. I'm here because you were there. That is an awesome comment. Uh, Ande Sullivan writes, I will always have the most utmost respect for all those who lived and breathed to give not only African-Americans, but all Americans a better future. Rest in peace, Harriet Tubman. Amen. Roberto Cruz, 45, writes, I have learned so much. Thank you, and thank you, Harriet Tubman. You are one badass woman. 
Hail is Safina. Agreed. Danny L. writes, Harry Tubman, you were here. We speak your name for 100 years since your death, and we will speak your name for hundreds more. And finally, Mariah Fox leaves us with a Tubman quote. I freed a thousand slaves. I would have freed a thousand more if only they knew they were slaves. That's some deep shit. That is some deep shit. Beautiful sentiments uh, by a beautiful, very inspirational, intelligent woman. Thank you for reminding us all uh, that people, you know, are not in fact always idiots of the internet. Idiots of the internet. All right, one last footnote to Harriet motherfucking Tubman's story I want to discuss before digging into today's top five takeaways. The $20 bill controversy. Right? I feel like people would be angry if I didn't bring this up at least. On, on April 20, uh, 2016, the U.S. Treasury announced that a new design of the $20 bill will feature uh, the portrait of Harriet Tubman on the front. Uh, Suck 106 subject, Andrew motherfucking Jackson, been on the bill since 1928. Uh, if Tubman were to make the front, he would be moved to the back. Activists wanted to see Jackson, the seventh president, move to the reverse of the bill because of his policies against you know Native American or American Indians and, and African Americans. Uh, the new design expected to be made uh, public initially in 2020 to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment. Now, looking iffy as far as this happening. June 2015, the Treasury Department had originally initiated a campaign to include a woman. This is like the story of how this all came about. Uh, initiated a campaign to include a woman in the redesign of the $10 bill. Uh, but this received a lot of backlash, partly due to the popularity of Alexander Hamilton, uh, recently, which is due largely, I'm not kidding, to the, the popularity of the hit Broadway musical Hamilton. Admirers of a Alexander Hamilton worried that he would be displaced from the $10 bill. Uh, he was the first secretary of the Treasury from 1789 to 1795, recognized as the father of the U.S. economic system, leading in the establishment of a national bank, uh, funding to states' debts by the federal government, tariffs and trade relations, very important economic figure. Former President Andrew Jackson, on the other hand, uh, did not have as many supporters. When this was being brought up, and uh, you know, and, and a lot of uh, a lot of people wanted to not move Hamilton, but move Jackson instead. After consultations with the public, the Treasury Department decided to keep Hamilton on the front of the ten dollar bill, and in the back include leaders of the suffrage movement, such as Lucretia Mott, Alice Paul, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Susan B. Anthony, Sojourner Truth. They also decided to redesign the twenty dollar bill, featuring Harriet Tubman, whose heroism reflects American values and the power of an individual to make a difference. However, in a letter to Congress that was released this past June 2018, the Treasury Department praised husband Tubman. Uh, they did praise Tubman, you know, a former slave and abolitionist, uh, civil rights hero. But they also made no commitment now as to whether she would one day be the face of the, on the 20. Uh, saying the redesign of the next currency series is still in the early stages and neither the final designs nor all features have been finalized for the new notes. This is uh, Drew Maloney writing, the Treasury's Assistant Secretary for Legislative Affairs. And he also writes, for this reason, the department is unable to provide additional information regarding the potential designs at this time. So it sounds like they're just, you know, blowing a little smoke right here. It's also unclear uh, when the redesign will be made public or ready for circulation. They're delaying stuff. Uh, Mr. Maloney said it would likely be more than 10 years before the new $20 note is released. Senator uh, Gene Sh uh, Shaheen, uh, Democrat of New Hampshire, for forgive me if I'm messing up her first name or I guess last name, uh, who has said that Tubman's courage and persistence were emblematic of America's ideals and values, took the response as a bad sign for the plan to put Tubman on the 20, saying, I am severely disappointed by the Trump administration's failure to prioritize the redesign of the $20 bill to honor Harry Tubman and other trailblazing women and civil rights leaders now that the plan has been shelved without notice or reason. So the current status of the Harry Tubman $20 bill controversy sits in the undecided camp. 
How do I feel about this after sucking both Andrew motherfucking Jackson and Harry motherfucking Tubman? Well, uh, I think it's Harry's turn. I think why not? I mean, AJ's been on the front for a good 90 years and counting. Come on. He's had a good run. Strong run. Uh, and, and he is super dead. Let's not forget about that. Been dead a long time. His kids have been dead for a long time. His grandkids, great-grandkids, uh, great-great-grandkids, all very dead. No family who knew him or, or knew anyone who knew him or even knew someone who knew someone who knew him are alive. And, and we've never had a woman on any of the money, despite so many women doing so many great things to make our country amazing. It feels very sexist uh, to not finally put a woman on the bill. You know, it's always been white dudes. Feels, uh, you know, that's not, how, that's not our country's makeup anymore. You know, white dudes used to be in charge. Yeah, I get it. I'm a, I'm a white dude. You know, uh, it's just changing. Let's roll with the changes. Why not throw a woman a bone? And I also just uh, taking it outside of, of race uh, and men and women. I, I do get sick of that whole white man versus black woman argument. You know, why does the Harriet Tubman, uh, Andrew Jackson debate even have to be about that? Why can't it be about like, you know, this person did a lot of important things for our country, which Andrew Jackson did do despite his treatment of African-Americans and American Indians, which I'm well aware of. He did do a lot of important shit. Why can't it be about, well, this person did some important shit. They got to be on the bill. And now let's give someone else a turn who also did a lot of important shit. And that person just can happen to be Harry Tubman. Why do people got to make it about race and make it about sex all the time as well? And finally, slavery was super fucked up and it did happen and we can't take it back, but we can at least throw Harriet Tubman a bone, you know, at least at least uh, throw her on a tiny, uh, 20 is a tiny uh, token of sorry, uh, of an apology. Uh, in my opinion, it's the least we can do on this situation. And how does it affect anyone's life? Like, unless you are super racist, why would you be fucking mad about Harry Tubman's face being on your money? It still fucking spends the same. I think people, when they really get, you know, frantic about this and angry about, you know, the Andrew Jackson, and, and you know, after the suck, I'm a fan of a lot of what he did. But uh, to, to get, like, really, truly angry that he's no longer be on the bill, shut the fuck up. You're just, you're whining. You're, you're whining about shit that doesn't matter in your life. I don't know. I think, uh, you know, and he's going to be on the back still. He's not gone. He's going to be in the back. Maybe put him back there doing some cool shit instead of just his face. Maybe, maybe we could have him doing some cool AJ type stuff like, like uh, dueling. You know, he could be shooting somebody. <laughs> maybe charging into battle on horseback. You know, uh, put him in any kind of scene just as long as it's not, you know, him working on his uh, southern plantation. That would be, that would be awkward as fuck. Uh, but seriously, throw her on the bill. Hail Estefina. Hail Nimrod. Let's get into today's top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Harriet Tubman was born Araminta Minty Ross in 1825-ish. The HarrietTubman.org website lists her birth year as 1820. Uh, she was born on a farm in Dorchester County, Maryland. And she died in the town of Auburn, New York on March 10th, 1913. Born a slave, escaped in the fall of 1849, almost immediately returned to Maryland over and over again to, return, to rescue other members of her family and then become arguably the most famous conductor in the history of the Underground Railroad, helping roughly 300 African-Americans find freedom uh, during that time. Number two, the Underground Railroad was a vast network of people who helped fugitive slaves escape to the North and to Canada, and it was not run by any single organization or person. Rather, it consisted of many individuals, many whites, but predominantly black, who knew only of the local efforts to aid fugitives and not of the overall pop, uh, operation. Still, it effectively moved hundreds of slaves or more northward each year. According to one estimate, the South lost uh, roughly 100,000 slaves between 1810 and 1850 uh, due to the Underground Railroad. Number three, Harriet Tubman worked with, uh, you know, and befriended other noted abolitionists like Sojourner Truth, 
Frederick Douglass, John Brown, John Brown being that white dude who gave his own life for the cause, killing in the name of. Uh, Harriet also fought for, executed, um, uh, you know, uh, I'm so, oh, I'm sorry, sorry, I messed up a little bit. I got, I got distracted by Rage Against the Machine in it. <laughs> uh, John Brown was a white man who gave his own life for, for the cause that Harriet also fought for and was also executed for treason after raiding a federal armory at Harper's Ferry in present-day West Virginia in an attempt to kick off an armed abolitionist rebellion against Southern slaveholders. Uh, by 1860, number four, there were roughly 4 million slaves in the United States, 3,953,760 in the 1860 census. In the history of the transatlantic slave trade, 12.5 million Africans were shipped to the New World between 1525 and 1866. And then number five, new info. Harriet Tubman was known by the nickname Minty. As a child, uh, she was known as General Tubman by John Brown. And then she was referred to as Moses later in life, a nickname given to her by fellow abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison because just like the Jewish and Christian historical figure of Moses, uh, you know, Harriet Tubman helped her people escape from slavery and led them to the promised land. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Harriet motherfucking Tubman sucked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a fun one. Uh, that one made me feel good, man. As opposed to, say, the toy box killer, who made me feel like throwing myself off a building for a couple of days. Uh, Got to throw in those inspirational ones in, into the suck catalog from time to time. Uh, thanks again to the Time Suck team, the High Priestess of the Suck, Harmony Velikamp, Jesse Guardian of Grammar Dobner, uh, Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley. Thanks, Special thanks for sneaking in Woody during the show. Oh, God, I hope he's still there. He's still there. Uh, Time Suck High Priest Alex Dugan, the guys at Bit Elixir, Danger Brain, Space Lizards, Merch Wizards, Axis Apparel, or Axis Apparel, uh, making the Suck store look so good on Shopify right now. So many cool things there. And Queen of the Suck, uh, master really of everything here, Lindsay Cummins. Huge thanks to Sophie, Fact Sorceress Evans, for the wealth of great accurate Tubman info she threw in here. Uh, and also to research newbie Skylar Clifton, who kicked that research off. And then, of course, like always, uh, I made my life unnecessarily harder by bouncing around to a whole bunch of other websites and documentaries because I got sucked in to the tail. Um, also, I forgot to mention the past few time sucks. Man, a lot of people having fun in, in, in the private Facebook group, the Cult of the Curious, on Facebook. Over 5,000 time suckers there now. Uh, very active. Uh, tons of little subsets breaking off. Like there's uh, roughly 300 time suckers in a book club on Facebook right now. Just one of many examples. Also, the Time Suck Discord channel is growing as well for even more interaction. Going to have a link to that coming from the app very, very soon. Uh, roughly 750 very active members there. Always some fellow Time Suckers online to say hi to, make friends with. Love the good times everyone is having in the Cult of Curious community. Link to this private Facebook group and to the Discord channel in today's episode description. Next week, we go hard in the opposite direction of Tubman. Back to the land of true crime and murder and serial killing with the alphabet murders. Space Lizard voted in topic, thought Stan Lee was going to win, but the alphabet murder snuck in there and beat Stan Lee by literally one vote. Uh, three young girls raped and strangled in the Rochester, New York area in the 1970s, and each of the girls' first and last names started with the same letter. Each body was found in a town that had a name starting with the same letter as the victim's name. Carmen Colon in Churchville, Michelle Mainza in Macedon, or Macedon Wanda Wallaquitz in Webster. Right, CCC, MMM, WWW. Investigators have theorized that a series of killings uh, with similar circumstances in California in the late 1970s may also be connected to these murders. Uh, on April 11, 2011, 
77-year-old Joseph Nasso, a New York native who lived in Rochester, New York, during the 70s, was arrested in Reno, Nevada for some of the California murders, murders that occurred in 77, 78, 93, and 94. He was a professional photographer who had traveled between New York and California extensively for decades. And when investigators walked into his home in Reno, uh, they were greatly disturbed by what they found. What did they find? Listen next Monday and find out for yourself, Mate Sack. Time now for Time Sucker Updates. Updates. Get your time, sucker updates. Oh, first message coming in uh, about the Pinkerton suck. A little update from Cam Felt. Uh, time sucker. Uh, Cam says, Dan, right to you from Dallas, Texas, where you have a lot of great fans. I do, man. I still think about that show at that uh, theater where, um, uh, oh, my God, uh, JFK, uh, uh, Texas, the Texas Theater. And the guy, I, I have John Wilkes Booth stuck on my head from uh, thinking about Lincoln earlier, but the guy who, uh, uh, God damn it, the guy who tried to kill uh, JFK, Lee Harvey Oswald. Name wouldn't come to me for a second. That, that's where he uh, hung out shortly before being captured. I think where he was captured. But anyway, loved it. Loved uh, performing there. Uh, anyway, Cam says, I've been a big fan of the suck since the very beginning. Anywho, in the Pinkerton episode, you talked about where the word sheriff came from and then later mentioned Sir Robert Peel starting the London police force. Well, Robert Peel is my direct great-great-grandfather, and the reason the London police force is called Bobby's today is because originally they were called Bobby's Boys. Bobby, of course, being a nickname for Robert. That's very cool. Thought you'd enjoy that fun fact. Thanks for all the hard work you and your team do. Uh, Cam. Thank you, Cam. Thank you very much. I love that added info. Yeah. Now we know where the term London Bobby or, you know, comes from and where Sheriff comes from. Uh, little shout out request coming in from time sucker, Johnny Donahue, who writes, hail Supreme suck master Cummins. It would be a miracle if you were able to read this as my internet data and online info tends to get fucked up for no reason. Miracle granted. Nimrod has spoken. Uh, I've been a huge fan of your comedy for a while now. I'm a devoted time sucker. Thank you. When I heard about your podcast on Pandora, I immediately raced over to the Times website, literally binged all of it to get caught up. The reason I'm sending you this now is to say thanks for all the sucking you do and also for to ask for a shout out. Uh, my 20th birthday is on the 10th, and it would be amazing if you could mention me in the next episode. I will not hold anything against you if you miss this one. As I told you, my internet data and info tends to be a bit screwy, and we do get a lot of shout out requests. So uh, sorry to those of you who don't get in, um, but it would be great if you could. Love what you're doing. Hail Nimrod. Hail Lucifina. Hail Triple M. Give Bojangles a spoonful of peanut butter for me and keep on sucking. Ah, oh, wish granted. Happy birthday, Johnny Donahue. Happy birthday, Johnny Donahue. Nimrod wishes you a happy birthday. And Chikatilo's going to wrestle you to ground and beat you a soft shamecock. So, yeah, good luck with that. Uh, pronunciation update from Allison Solomon. Uh, Allison says, hi, I'm behind as I just discovered your podcast. I love it. Thank you for creating awesome stuff. I wasn't going to point out the correct way to pronounce fucking uh, Frank as in Elizabeth Bathory's husband, but then you kept saying you like being corrected so you can get smarter. I do. Frank was my, I'm, I know I'm saying it wrong. I haven't got your pronunciation part, so I don't know how I'm saying it right now. Frank was my grandfather's name. It's like the Hungarian equivalent of Frederick. Okay. It's actually pronounced like Terence with an F, like Ferenc. Oh, well, why couldn't they put a fucking E on the end of it? Okay. All right. Ferenc, thank you. Thank you, Allison. Uh, keep on sucking. Love, Allison Solomon. Love you as well. Appreciate that. Uh, and now a, uh, a little thank you from a Spokane show attendee, Wendy King, who gave me this badass little lizard, little lizard bracelet. I mean, this thing is so cool. A little custom 
chainmail lizard bracelet uh, at the show. Wendy says, howdy ho, Suckmaster Cummins. Loyal spacers are Wendy here, fresh off the awesomeness that was a Spokane early show on December 1st. It was absolutely awesome to meet you, and our beautiful queen of the show was fan-fucking-tastic. Actually, she says freaking. My mind automatically autocorrected to fucking. Uh, yeah, Lindsay was there helping, helping after the shows. I nearly peed my pants. I'm actually writing today because normally I would record my message, but I had an encounter that I wanted to share in writing in hopes that I could get a shout out on the next regular time suck. This was my first time my husband and I attended a show at Spokane Comedy Club, and we were not aware that if you bought less than four tickets, you could be seated with strangers. At first, I felt awkward, but the couple that we were placed with was really cool and super friendly. I was able to convert them to Time Suck, and today downloaded the... Oh, and they downloaded the app right then and there. Ha <laughs> ha! Hail Nimrod! Uh, we had a lovely conversation, and once the show started, we were all laughed heartily. As soon as the show was over, they left, and I made a beeline to meet and greet while meeting, uh, waiting to meet you. My husband went to settle our tab, only to be told that our tab had already been paid for by a mystery person. I can only assume it was the couple at our table, but because they'd already left, we did not get a chance to say thank you. Since I know they downloaded the app and hope they will continue to listen to the next few time sucks, at least, Wendy, I would love to get a shout out to the, or, uh, or give a shout out to the amazing couple from the December 1st show at the Spokane Comedy Club. Thank you for paying our tab. I know that we will, and know that we will pay it forward. I really enjoyed our conversation. I'm glad to have met you. Dan, on a personal note, I was flying high when I handed you my lizard, uh, yeah, the bracelet, and I got a hug. Sir, you made my night, week, month, year. My husband is now an official convert as well, downloading the app tonight. Thank you for everything you do, everything that uh, you've inspired and every laugh you've given. Always and forever, your loyal space lizard and chain mailer, Wendy, with an I, not a Y. Thank you, Wendy. Uh, and now uh, we, we got a little update from uh, somebody sent in, um, Ray, Time Sucker Ray. Joe, do you have Ray's last name? I didn't, I didn't put it down in the notes. Joe's going to grab it. Uh, so, Ray, you're going to get a proper shout-out after I play this little mix down based on last week's fake uh, fake ad with Sergeant Bubbles, uh, Monkey Security Systems. Uh, he sent this in, and I just wanted to play it for you guys. Uh-huh. Yeah, starting off with a little time Triple M is brought to you today by Sergeant Bubbles Elite Primate Home Security Systems. Yeah, yeah, yeah! Did you know that according to Sergeant Bubble, home invasions worldwide have gone up by over 6,000% What kind of shit is that? In the last few months. Now, if you don't feel scared at home, you should. You should. Because some Richard Nightstalker Ramirez, some toy box killer, some Golden State killer type super creep is probably sniffing your undies, <laughs> sniffing your panties that they stole just yesterday. It's, it happens all, all the time. So stop wondering what goes bump in the night and protect yourself with one of Sergeant Bubbles' elite primate home security systems. For the small fee of $1,500 a month, two chimps armed with handguns, knives, popped up on a manageable level of methamphetamine will continually patrol the perimeter of your home day and night, biting, stabbing, probably shooting anything out of the ordinary. Uh, if someone you don't know stops by, those chimps will attack first, ask questions later. And for only $1,500 more a month, you can upgrade the premium package where an additional chimp patrols your home perimeter. Got three chimps out there. And then also you got three tiny monkeys on the little switchblade and little Glock G42s. They're following you around the house. Safety's off, chamber loaded at all times. Wherever you go, you will rest easy knowing there are chimps and monkeys protecting your home and person. Now, please note that Sergeant Bubbles Elite Primate uh, Home Security Systems are not liable for any damage or killing or mayhem caused by the monkeys uh, and or chips. 
Oh, thank you, Ray. Ray GFX, no last name given. Well, mystery. Shamecock Ray, known as Shamecock Ray uh, through the app. Shamecock Ray, <laughs> thank you so much, man, for that mixdown. Sergeant Bubbles. Oh, oh, ah, ah. Uh, fantastic. One last update now. One last update. That was uh, amazing. From, uh, from Yana Moberg, expressing gratitude for the suck. Reminded me of how long I've been working in comedy. Uh, Yana writes, holy fucking shit. So I decided to check out your stand-up and freak the fuck out. Story time. <laughs> when I was in middle school, insert joke here about how old you are. Ah, I loved watching stand-up when my parents weren't around. I saw your stand-up and fucking loved it and would quote it all the time. But because I was a stupid 11-year-old, I forgot to remember your name. After scouring Wikipedia and Comedy Central for a while, I gave up. Q October 2018. I came across this podcast, which may or may not have involved a Google search of good conspiracy podcasts. Since then, I have sacrilegiously binge listened to the podcast. Then I decided to check out the stand-up, and you're the fucking guy with that joke about your kids. <laughs> uh, this could have uh, only occurred to the power of Nimrod. Hail Nimrod. I cannot express how satisfying it has been to resolve this decade-long mystery. Thank you, Professor Dr. Suckmaster Supreme, Yana P.S. Say hi to Lindsay, please, because she's my favorite part of the suck. Polish power. Favorite part? Ah, oh, it was such a good message until you ruined it there at the end. Lindsay's not even a human being. Uh, but okay, fine. All right, Lindsay's favorite part. I hope she doesn't listen to this. Uh, well, you'll be happy to know that eventually in 2019, uh, Lindsay and I plan on doing a side podcast together. We're thinking about calling it The Human and the Monster. I, of course, being The Human. The Good Human and the Scary Polish Monster podcast. No, we are thinking about doing a, uh, a podcast together. Not thinking, we're going to. I just don't have a launch date. It'll, it'll, it won't be for a few months. Um, just gotta need more time, need more time to get it all ready. Time is the enemy. I got, I got, I got to pray to Nimrod to stop with your relentless ticking of time. Like Dylan Thomas said, rage, rage against the dying of the light. Do everything you can with your time. And, uh, thank you so much for sending that in. Thanks for all the updates, everybody. And, uh, yeah, let's get out of here. Let's get out of here until the end of the show. Thanks time suckers. I needed that. We all did. Thanks for sucking today, you beautiful bastards. Don't let anyone hold you down this week. Harriet motherfucking Tubman sure would not. And keep on sucking. (laughs) And then your body has decided to poop salt water. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. At Capella University. You'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.